zip lock that Right on my waistline is why I kept that strap I remember nights, I didn't remember nights I damn near went crazy, I had to get it right Now I'm your favorite rapper's favorite rapper Hey, now I'm your favorite trapper's favorite trapper The absolute truth, yeah, no Ladies and gentlemen, welcome into the Trap Draw podcast. It is great to have you. This week's episode is a perfect club, and the topic is the Hoop Dreams documentary, which is going on, God, 30 years now. And as it's late February, early March, it is prime time for basketball, college basketball in particular. So very relevant topic. We're going to get into that. But before we do, I want to thank one of our sponsors right off the top, and that is our good friends at Roback. We are kicking off another year with Roback, and we couldn't be more excited. And they ha- they're fresh off new restocks, so they have polos, hoodies, Q-zips, and trust us when we say there isn't a better gear for golf or everyday life this year. The fit, the feel, the quality, it's all perfect. All right, the products. First, Roback. They've just restocked their hoodies, and excited is an understatement. You know how much we love the Roback hoodies. They're soft, they're stretchy. They're so comfortable. Whether you're wearing them on the course or just around, they're sure to make you feel good. And the performance Q-zips, I don't want to overlook these. They are the only Q-zips we wear. They're the definition of versatile. The Q-zips are made to keep you warm for an early round. Or, you know, you look sharp and, and you remain comfortable all throughout your day. Whatever you want. And then finally, the Roback Performance Polos are the best polos we own. They have the best crisp collars that don't lose their shape and the designs are incredible the fit is far better than the old boxy polos trust us when we say they are worth checking out and if you haven't already it's now time to load up on some roback both for yourself and for others head on over to roback.com and use code trap t-r-a-p for a generous 20 percent off your first order through the end of this week roback is spelled r-h-o-b-a-c-k it's roback.com and get 20% off all bottoms, Q-zips, hoodies, and more with Code Trap. Get ready for golf season with Roback. Thank them for being an excellent sponsor of what we do. And let me welcome two associates who are going to be chatting hoop dreams with me. The first, Neil Schuster, the merch czar. Good morning, good afternoon, Neil. How are you? God, Randy, that was if people want to see a pro do, you know, do his job. Randy just knocking out a, a a perfect ad read right there. Nice work, buddy. I was gonna, I was thinking I might parachute in and help you, you know, add a little levity, but you were just you were cooking. You were cooking. That's right. That's right. It was it was an ISO play. Give me the ball. No, things are good. It's a little uh it's a little bleak up here in the big city. Uh, but I'm fired up, man. I I, you know, finished watching the documentary this morning with coffee, and it's you know, it's not an uplifting watch, but it's a very thought-provoking film and, and i'm excited to get into it but yes without further ado let's welcome kvv in as well our host of this perfect club kvv what's cooking in baltimore fellas thank you so much for having me uh i thought you know march is coming around i think we ought to talk uh one of the great documentaries of all time certainly digs deep on a lot of uh thoughtful subjects you know what sometimes we have a perfect club that's funny that's whimsical that's, that's goofy and sometimes we have a perfect club that uh has a little more thought to it and i think this one is probably of that category thank you for another opportunity to re-watch this i don't know how many times i've seen this documentary but i was shocked i watched it yesterday it it held my attention you know it's nearly three hours i've seen it at least four or five times previously 
and I loved watching it again. I, I know we're going to get into some of that, but thank you for the opportunity to rewatch it, and I'm excited to talk about it. And that's that's interesting, Randy, because I I watched it in college as part of a college class, um, and I I wouldn't say I paid. It didn't captivate me. I think I was probably busy and doing 15 other things, and so it was like all three hour documentary. And I remember it like, oh, this is pretty interesting, but just probably doing again like three other things while that while it was on, and I was probably watching it with my you know, roommate or something. Um, but this time around, I mean, I was locked in and I, I actually in, intentionally broke it up into like three sittings so that I wouldn't glaze over. And so watched it over the course of the last uh, three nights. Also, I almost had, I almost rented it and paid for it on Amazon prime, but then I, I used the voice on YouTube TV and uh, Turner classic movies had it for free in the archive. How about that? Uh, because it, the Hoop Dreams is now part of the Smithsonian's collection. It's been yeah. almost deemed like a historic artifact of American culture, which was was awesome. So, uh, well, yeah. That's lovely. That's lovely. I watched it on HBO Max. I guess it's just called Max now. Uh, and so as a subscriber to that, I was able to dial it up for free. Uh, there's probably some people who are tuning in this perfect club who aren't aware of uh, Hoop Dreams. Uh, well, hopefully that you're in the minority. If you haven't, uh, I would highly recommend you check it out. It is a documentary about two inner city Chicago basketball players uh, that began when three sort of, I guess, really budding producers, photography people, uh, Steve James, Frederick Marks, and Peter Gilbert were working as uh, sort of to, to put together a, a short 30 minute film, what they thought it was going to be about inner city basketball uh, for PBS. And it, this is in 1987. And they went out basically to the Chicago playgrounds and were like, hey, show me who the best like hoops prospects are. We think it'd be, make for a really cool like playground basketball thing. And uh, they had a sort of a, like a runner guy, guy who like, works for a scout for some of the local Chicago private high schools. Uh, point the, them the, to, the insurance salesman. Moonlight says such a, as a, a good character. Yeah, he is. Such a he good is. character. Truly some of my favorite characters in basketball lore who are like right up there with the bag man, uh, who is, is also a great sort of uh, mysterious basketball character who just kind of works as a liaison between, you know, the, the legendary coaches who don't really want to get their hands dirty, don't really want to go, you know, down to the playgrounds and talk to kids, but would love to have those kids brought to them. Uh, and anyway, this this insurance guy, he Earl Smith. connects them. I, I don't want yes. to shortchange him. Earl oh, Smith. Thank you, Big. I did not write down his name, but Earl uh, sort of takes them to see uh, Arthur Agee, who's like a very you know wiry, speedy point guard type. Uh, and eventually, uh, there's some you know they they get he's like a scout for St. Joe's High School. And when they go to St. Joseph's High School, uh, that's where they kind of meet uh, and and discover. William Gates, who the coach of Chicago's uh, St. Joe's believes is going to be the next Isaiah Thomas, uh, Isaiah Thomas, who graduated from St. Joseph and played for Coach Gene Pingatori or Pingator, I think is how it's pronounced. Uh, but before we kind of get into that, guys, I, I, you know, we talk a lot about golf, but you know, we only sort of touch a little bit on basketball in our lives here. I, I am sort of curious. I know all of us have some experience with either falling in love with basketball or playing basketball. I'm very curious when you first kind of fell in love with basketball. What do you love about basketball? What a tough, uh, broad question this was, KVV. Neil, I'll, I'll go first. Honestly, I was. this really made me reflect and think back. And 
I could probably ramble on for an hour detailing how I fell in love with basketball, but I, I'll, I'll start with this. I, I have several just early formative memories involving basketball. I, I can remember my parents got, you know, the, the little like plastic living room hoop. Uh, I, I remember having a ton of fun playing on that very early in my life, you know, probably three, four, five, six years old, something like that. But the more formative memories, and I think where I really f- started to fall in love and eventually fell in love with the game of basketball happened uh, in the early 90s for me. So kind of between the ages of, let's say, 8 and 16. And at the early range of that, like the first college basketball team I can remember being aware of was that UNLV, the, the running Rebels, the, the, the Larry Johnson team that won a national title and then lost trying to go back to back to Duke. I believe that was in 91. And then the very next year, the Fab Five come in and, and kind of blow up college basketball and, and the culture around basketball as we know it. And so as a as a nine-year-old in 1992, I mean, the Fab Five was just everything for me. I, I loved them right from the start. I couldn't get enough Michigan basketball I, I loved watching their games on TV. I would go out into our driveway and I would, you know, kind of create games and situations by myself, um, would play a ton with buddies in the neighborhood. And I think that was where the, the love really started. That carries me into, you know, the mid 90s and then the later 90s as I'm in junior high. I'm, I'm going to tons of basketball camps and I, I'm just. I, I don't know what it is about basketball. I mean, I, I do think it's a beautiful game. It's it's a team game. It's 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 athletic. It's strategic. It's there's so many ways to be successful in the game of basketball, both individually and as a team. I, I love all of that about it. And, and I think what what capped my love of basketball, <laughs> the Miami Redhawks and Wally Zerbiak specifically. Driving up to those games, you know, whether it was my mom, my dad, both of us, I, I would beg them to take me up to as many games as possible. And just getting to watch like really good college basketball uh, was was a thrill to me. And, and growing up in Cincinnati, I will say Cincinnati is such a college basketball hotbed. You, you have bear. Xavier Muskies, come on, the Crosstown shootout, Randy, unbelievable. No, exactly. I mean, the UC was in a Final Four in 1992. Obviously, the the Bob Huggins UC teams were were very, very good. Xavier was a good program. The University of Dayton's a great program. University of Louisville, University of Kentucky, you know, Miami, which is a mid-major. Ohio State was in a Final Four in 1992. It just, you can draw a map. And, and that's not even saying, God, I didn't even mention Indiana. Indiana, Purdue. You know, that 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 part of the country is such a hotbed for college basketball. And it was at that time. And so it was impossible not to just get wrapped up in the excitement of all that. So I, yeah, that's a very long rambling answer. I, I think the only other thing I wanted to shout out was, I loved going to our high school basketball games when I was growing up. So that was a point I would, I would go most Friday nights. We would go to some road games. We would follow the Marymount warriors uh, who always had a pretty good basketball program. And so early on, you just start dreaming of like, I, I knew I wanted to play varsity basketball and I wanted to play college basketball. And it's interesting to me in juxtaposition of hoop dreams. 
I don't think I ever had that dream, even as a kid, of like playing NBA basketball. I, I don't know why. It always was like college basketball was the pinnacle for me. And so that that was kind of what set me in motion and and how my love of the game um came to be, I guess. But Neil, I'm curious, what 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 was it for you? No, good great question for me. Uh, to reflect on basketball was my first sports love not even close far and away I was good I was a really good elementary and middle school player and and in kind of differing from Randy I've I was never a good fan I yeah I rooted for Georgia Tech and the Paul Hewitt teams and you know I was always a you know I had certain players I liked to watch but I always just wanted to play and growing up it was I I just waited on the sideline at at Tron's games for the for them to go to halftime so I could go yeah. shoot around. Yeah. Right. And and when the final four was on, I wanted to be in the driveway shooting. And I think where I really fell in love with it, which is kind of weird, is I loved playing alone. I practiced for hours. I had an awesome, like my my shooting form was was dialed at a young age. I was I loved the pistol Pete drill videos. I loved to just dribble. Like I got, I probably watched that Nike dribbling commercial. 500 times, you know, when the guy's throwing it through his shirt and all the, all the, all the different dribbling techniques you could do. And so I was really kind of, um, I just love to practice. And I, and then I love to play and that, and that translated to success. Like at a young age, like I could get the ball in the hoop. I was like, you know, a, a really good player and not, you know, in like Catholic school, elementary leagues, it wasn't like I was on some crazy good AAU teams that came later. And the success, you know, started, you talk about high school and all that shortly, but it was all about playing basketball. I was addicted to playing the game. And I think even into high school, I, I quit playing it in, in ninth grade um, or summer going into 10th grade, which was a huge decision for me to make. But even through high school, I played a ton. I started playing a ton of pickup basketball at a couple parks on the north side of Atlanta, which was, I think, a really good experience for me. You know, Atlanta can be very segregated, for lack of a better term. And the public park pickup stuff was like, instructive in my young development of like going to the park and you know running the court for you know showing up and and being you know four or five games straight like you learn a lot at the park and so there's it's like basketball is my first love and then that taught me some lessons in life outside of organized basketball and then you know i've continued to play up until really like last spring i've been on a rec team up here and and you know i'm starting to get to the point where like pre our trip to australia i didn't want to like blow my knee out you know i'm starting to be like i feel like i'm playing a little bit of russian roulette if you show up out of shape at 34 we could be asking for trouble so i don't know i'm not ready to say i'm retired randy but i'm getting you know i'm 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 considering my options here it's a bit of a vince carter like you know i got one more in me you know <laughs> i don't know i don't know where i'm at right now so that's kind of my my early early basketball stuff what a delight it is to hear those stories. I, I hear sort of echoes of my own uh, love, I guess, in both of those. I, you know, it's interesting, Neil. I loved the same thing, like being alone, like just shooting three-pointers for hours and hours. I mean, I, I also loved the team aspect of it. And I had sort of a group of friends and we would play, you know, two-on-two. -two, and we would spend our whole summer, you know, even though I was ended up playing college football, like a, a majority of our summer was spent just getting two-on-two -two games going. And I had one buddy who was always my partner and he was a much better player than I was and I was always probably the fourth best player on the court out of four people yet we just love to freaking compete like the only thing I could do 
with any real consistency was like shoot a fadeaway jumper. And I like I probably stole that right from Michael Jordan. I mean, I would just I wasn't that tall, but I could for whatever reason could shoot the ball better as I was like flying away from the basket, which made like me infuriating to play against with bigger, better players because I could sort of tough cover loft loft it way up over the top of these big, you know, faster, quicker, taller guys. But I really, you know, similar to you, big like I I mean, maybe like just like a little bit earlier, like that, you know, Kenny Anderson, Georgia Tech team, Shaq's LSU team, and the the NC State teams with Chris Corciani and Rodney Monroe, and those Duke teams with Hurley and Leitner, and you know, certainly the Fab Five. You know, that's what really made me like just love college basketball. And I was there was a time. I mean, I don't, I cannot remember the last time I watched a full college basketball game, including like the finals. Maybe like two years ago, I watched the full final of it, but I just. I was so obsessed back then with like the atmosphere of college basketball and just the the vibrant kind of weird you know different ways that different stadiums were and different coaches were. There were so many great characters in it. I think like my entry point to it was probably Magic Johnson because I loved every. There was you had to choose like when I was a kid whether you were a Jordan person, a Bird person, or a Magic person, and I was one thousand percent a Magic guy, and that's probably where it was born out of. But for a while, it just was completely all college basketball. And so revisiting like this movie, which I think I hadn't seen for 20 years, made me think a lot about like that era of college basketball and what it was becoming and kind of how the sausage was made. And there's a lot of like that makes you sort of miserable, but there's also a lot in here where I'm like, you know, compared to like the mess that it is now, like there's some some benefits to what it is, you know, when I see in this movie, you know, all this time. There's some prescient commentary in there uh, in this movie of things like, like Spike Lee's cameo. It's like, it's all about the money, guys. It's like, man, he was he was right back then. <laughs> he was calling it out, man. I don't know. It's God. And seeing like the seeing Rick Patino, you know, like show up at the ABCD camp. It's like, I mean, he's still at it. some of these guys are still at it, man. It's unbelievable. Yeah. It, I, I just want to say, Kevin, on, on that point, it, it I, I know everything when you're of a certain age. It, it always seems like it's the golden years of something. But I, I, I do believe the 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 time period of this documentary, it was filmed, what was it, between 1988 and 1991. Yeah, I think 87 they started filming, and then they it came out in 94, but it took them two years to edit it. I think, in, in my opinion, that's, that's really the last, like, golden age of college basketball I, I i believe that the big east was at its heyday that there's a great 30 for 30 rec, requiem for a dream about the founding and then eventual undoing of the big east but to me that that was a time where i think college basketball was much more important or at least relevant in a lot of ways than the the pro basketball you, you had guys, it was very common for guys to stay four years at, at colleges. I mean, I, I could name the starting fives for the majority of like the top 25 college basketball teams. And there was nothing I loved more than picking up like a Sports Illustrated or an Athlon basketball preview magazine and shit i would i would cut stuff out i i had stuff on my walls of my bedroom pictures of college basketball players it just was it 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 does seem like and maybe it's just everything looks better when you're younger but it it seems like that was such a special time for college basketball there's this great anecdote and i love the fab 5 but i remember reading this anecdote in sports illustrated 
but I may have even talked about this on an NLU pod before where they the Duke and Michigan played each other in a rematch like early in the season after they had met in the national championship game and Duke had won. And Bobby Hurley, who I kind of hated, hit like seven three pointers and just like I think it was at Michigan and like screamed to the the Michigan student body, ain't nobody out here can check me. And I just thought that was like such an obnoxious, but like also like amazing shit talking sort of thing to say that I'd still would like say that, you know, in pickup basketball games for 20 years later when I would hit like two shots in a row, just completely <laughs> obnoxious, annoying. Hey, nobody out here can check me. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I remember that game. They, they had some battles there, uh, Duke and Michigan. That was God, that was good stuff. Guys, this documentary was in, originally intended to be a 30-minute segment on PBS, as Sitter said in the opener, and turned into, what, a five, six-year film project? Uh, Which this podcast it, may, was intended to be an hour, <laughs> and it, it, based on our our intro, it may be a three-hour. Past the length of yeah. the Hoop Dreams of the documentary. What would it take for you to invest five years of your life in a single project? I see. I love. Uh, that's one of the things that's that's so magnetic about the uh, the, the documentary. The you can feel that you as the as the you know the two players age and you see them like hit puberty and grow. Like as Arthur goes from this little tot playing you know Isaiah Thomas one on one to like where he's at at the you know at the end when he's going to junior college. It's it's like such a. I know it's all it's you can't look away. You're like, oh my God, they they got so much footage. And so then it makes as as someone who, you know, and you guys probably feel this way too, as, as a team that does video work, my mind immediately goes to like the nuts and bolts of how you do that. Of like, man, I so I'm I'm guessing these guys show up on a certain set days and you know, they gotta have other stuff going on in between, but it's just like, can you keep the flame alive long enough to, you know, see the story through? And I, and God, there must've been so many late night conversations for the, you know, the three producers of like, should we really be doing this? Is this worth it? Like, is this going to amount to anything? And so, you know, I think it's just first off a testament to them for like, you know, sticking with it. But, but I think it, it's kind of in that, that bucket of like half a life is showing up. And if you keep showing up and, you know, we'll talk about this was like, how, how do you gain trust with, you know, a community that like these guys are parachuting in. Like how do these you know white guys get? Yeah, three like, white guys, by the way. Three white guys get trust with an inner city family, uh, especially the AGs. You know, with their world kind of falling apart over this four year period, it's like a lot of it is just like being there and being consistent and being like you know, again and again doing the right thing, not burning the family. Um, you know, some of it's just like interpersonal stuff, which I think is is worth calling out. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I was trying to think about is there a golf story that I would commit five years of my life to. Uh, maybe in my 20s, I would have been like, yeah, like this is what this is real journalism, man. This is well, hardcore shit. I'm doing this. I'm I'm in for the next however many years and I'm going to convince my bosses. I, I A couple of times at the Baltimore Sun, I got to spend, uh, I spent four months on one particular series that had a, a lot of echoes. It was about inner city football and, it, and I had never seen uh, Hoop Dreams at the time. Uh, and, and so I, what I, it was, if I had seen it now, I would be like, Oh, Kevin just totally ripping off hoop dreams, uh, doing that. But it was, it was more like Friday night lights slash like meets season four of the wire. Uh, and I spent four or five months and it was, that was really hard to convince my editors at the sun. Hey, you know, if you give me this time to 
spend this time with these kids and write about it and edit it, you're going to get, you know, 25,000 words of like really good shit when I'm done. And it was like it, the paper nominated it for a ton of awards, including a Pulitzer, uh, obviously didn't win, but like it, that was really, really proud of that. And I felt like I earned the trust of those kids over time like that. But there's no way like a newspaper now would do that. I mean, it just would seem like completely against any economic model that you could put together. Like, oh, you're going to have one like, you know, big written series that comes out, you know, six months after it starts. And that's what you do for the sum total of all that time. We pay your salary all that whole time. That's what kind of I, I just I wonder sometimes if this kind of stuff is really possible, you know, in terms of like the way that things are funded now, or the, the return of investment that's needed now. I, I, part of me thinks it is because like you, you think of one thing that enabled this was technology. So in reading up afterwards, they, they made the conscious decision to use video instead of film, which, which allowed them to shoot over, I think it was like 250 hours of footage. Whereas if they'd use film, which was what normally you'd shoot a documentary or a movie on that, that would have been completely impossible. But then we think about it and it's like, you know, when you get some of these up close shots of like, these guys, when you know, after they brick two free throws and it's in the middle of a playoff game, and like, what's the size of that camera in his face? Like, how did he not punch the producer? You know, but nowadays we could, you could do this with a cell phone. I think it's less about the funding and more about the attention span. You know, or or just like the the things just happen so much quicker now that it, it you know, could, truly could a group of individuals like stay invested for that long. At this point, it's almost like a more of that. That's where my head goes less so of like the cost structure, because it, this proves that I think one of the beauties of this documentary, too, is that like it is rough around the edges. It was clearly done on a budget and we can talk about things that that like identify that. But I think that's why people love it so much is because and, 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 and to relate it back to our content, our stuff is rough around the edges, but it feels authentic. And I think viewers, a lot of viewers will like reward something if it feels authentic even if it doesn't have the right coloring and finishing and you know they're not mm -hmm. using top of the line equipment i had that feeling i guess as the slowly as the documentary unfolded because i i can't remember you know what i thought about it that much other 20 years ago other than like oh that was awesome it's like at the beginning i was like oh man this feels really dated you know the the hoop dreams rap at the beginning and some of the sort of graphics whatever i made a note that intro song is fire that was one of the <laughs> so is so is the just ongoing moody sax yeah. score yeah. the whole thing Absolutely. is like it's straight out of the 80s it's unbelievable yeah and i think by the end of it i was like holy shit they captured a lot of incredible moments like mm -hmm. the just the amount of stuff that they were there for uh, to me was and the, the kind of admissions that they got from the characters was incredible i mean it's just really you know i think this kind of gets into my next question uh roger ebert who was like a well, big hold on, champion KV, i i sorry not to cut you off but there's one more thing i want to add here on a five-year project like this i think what's amazing is i think that's in in some ways an easier thing to do with written work so i there's i had a professor at columbia his name is sudhir venkatesh who some listeners may know a sociology professor and he wrote a book gang leader for a day where he basically like embedded in a chicago project for i think it was a year maybe two years where he just like started showing up and hanging out with this gang and then they kind of like accept him into it and i remember you know taking his class and he was he kind of echoed that like oh honestly like you know how did you do that? how did you not get shot basically he's like i just kept showing up and like didn't have an ulterior motive and then they kind of started looking after me. And then they were like, hey, do you want to like 
we need your help if you're going to hang out. And so then that, that, that trust is like earned over time. And I, you know, that's a like pretty provocative book that I would, I would recommend. And the other one that I read in, in, uh, in college was uh random family, which is by Adrian Nicole LeBlanc. And she basically, she got a MacArthur fellowship, but she spent 10 years. She, she was going to write like a new, uh, a magazine article about this heroin dealer in the Bronx who gets a life sentence and, and leaves behind like, you know, his family is uh, like basically like two families. And what happens when a, you know, kingpin gets put behind bars and she ends up basically like embedding with this group or this kind of like extended family of people for 10 years. And then writes this book about like, you know, kind of just like life in the Bronx and, you know, in, in drug culture. And it's, it's really, really good. And it's, it's, basically 10 years of reporting all put into a book. So it feels like this kind of project is almost more doable in a, in written work because you're not as like, I just think about these guys with these cameras in at the playgrounds and in that, in those church scenes and how, especially back in the early nineties, how it's like out of, flashing out of lights out of yeah. place, like good God, like how is anybody being natural in this setting with, with what is probably a big rig camera uh, just like around, you know, how do they not get like jumped with all the stuff that's going on in, in the streets? And, and so that's, that to me makes this, uh, the fact that this is a, a documentary film that much more impressive. I think the, the written stuff is almost, it's almost easier to keep a low profile and collect notes when it's going to be a, a written piece. I will say, and this is, it maybe speaks to a little bit what you're talking about, but I've lived in Baltimore now for 24 years and have certainly written a lot of stories about, you know, the difficult areas and athletes coming out of those areas and stuff. And I have almost always been treated like royalty. Like when I show up in those, uh, you know, communities, or whatever, they're like, oh man, like, thanks so much for like coming and telling our story. Like, I can't believe ES you know, ESPN is here. Baltimore Sun is here. And I'll, I'll never forget, like I went to a basketball game. It was like a big inner city rivalry game. It's like kind of the, a lot of the, very much like the games that Arthur is playing in like late in the like for the Chicago City Championship, and it was like the two best Baltimore City schools, and I'm pretty confident I was the only white person in the whole gym, and like a fight broke out and it was like a big brawl, and the coach from one of the teams went like right over to me and was like, "Come with me," and he like took me downstairs in the basement, whatever, and he's like, "If shit goes down, like I don't want you to get hurt in all this situation." And I was like, no, no, like, I'm fine. I'm fine. Don't worry. Like, I'm a reporter. And he's like, no, dude, it's important to me that you are, like, safe in this situation and let the cops, like, sort it out. I don't know what's just going to happen. And I was like, man, like, I, I almost felt guilty about it. I was like, why? I don't deserve any of this, like, sort of special treatment, whatever. But it was like, he was like, you're a guest in my world, and I am going to make sure that you are treated right. And I'm, I'm embarrassed about what's happened here. And I was just, I've always, like, felt, you know, almost like you get a, a pass to like kind of write about those communities, right. And to talk about them. And I mean, obviously like I'm 40 something white dude who's, you know, worked in newspapers and media my whole life. And it was just like a really kind of moving thing to be able to talk up to, you know, in those communities and be like, I want your stories are super important and they don't get told enough. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah. it also probably speaks to the, the, just the showing up part for sure. like, you know, familiar face. Uh, we've seen Kevin around a ton, you know, I, I mm -hmm. guess that's probably where, um, I, I just really think it's in some ways it seems like too simple of an answer of like how these guys pulled off. It's like, well, they just kept showing up, <laughs> you know, <laughs> right. and that's probably like literally half of it. 
And then they well, got really the things, lucky too that the stories yeah. turned out good. But we can For talk sure. about that shortly. One of the things I read in that is that part of the way that they earn the trust of the AG family is that after he, you know, if you haven't seen the film, he goes to St. Joe's, he gets recruited, you know, and you think like, oh, he's going to be a part of St. Joe's for a while. And he, his family basically can't pay the tuition at St. Joe's. And so they very coldly just sort of tell him like, well, you're gone. You, you can't be here anymore. You're done. And the documentary people wanted to keep him part of the film. And that like helped the AGs feel like, all right, well, maybe they're not out to just sort of like do a story about like star basketball players. Like maybe, you know, it just, they still believe that, you know, Arthur could, could develop it to something. Um, I think one of the things I wanted to kind of ask your guys' thoughts on is like Roger Ebert was a huge champion of this film. Like when it came out, you know, no one really thought that it was going to be like a huge hit, but it did turn in sort of an international phenomenon. And there was a lot of controversy that it wasn't nominated uh, in the, the category for best documentary for the Oscars. But Ebert called it one of the best films about American life that I have ever seen. What do you think makes this film revelatory in a way that like previous documentaries were not? This this was I I I, I mean I preface all this saying I'm not a documentary historian, so I, I'm not entirely sure what the genre you know looks like up until the point of hoop dreams but i couldn't agree more with with ebert's suggestion that this this is for better for worse it's an incredible look at american life or at least one portion of american life and i think that the length of the project really helped that right seeing how people and families and circumstances can change and shift over the course of four, four and a half, five years uh, feeds into that. I think you have so many wonderful archetypes in this in this film. You know, we talked about Earl Smith, kind of scout slash fixer. You have Curtis Gates, William's older brother, who I just thought is is an incredible character. We can talk about him more. Um, the, the parents and I, it just, yeah, without, without speaking out of place on the inner city black America struggle, it, it just, from my perspective, opens up a window to, to that life and, and to that world that I wouldn't otherwise get quite frankly. And so recognizing that that's that's the reality for so many people in this country. It, it's a fantastic movie along those lines, and and yeah, I, I think additionally, then too, it's just like on top of all of that, you get a peak of like big time college athletics. What are they like? Even high school basketball and and St. Joe's. What's what's a private like a big powerhouse private basketball program like? What's an inner city basketball program like? It it just is fascinating how many different little pieces are in that movie that that so truly represent and encapsulate certain things. It, it it's an incredible <laughs> it's an incredible movie. Truly, I, I yeah, I, I'm blown away watching it again. I I would echo all that, Randy. But some a couple things that stick out to me is is uh, it's both like a window into a part of our culture that we don't have a ton of experience with. Right. So that's, that's naturally going to be fascinating and interesting and heartbreaking for me to watch. 
but it's also relatable. And I think it's relatable to different types of viewers. It's relatable to me as someone who played college athletics, went through that recruiting process. So all these coaching conversations are, are like, they, they were, they were drumming up some demons for me of like how these coaches have ulterior motives, how, how weird the recruiting process is, how it's like, Oh, well, it's your decision and you don't know what you're doing. And you're 17 or 18. Should I say yes and sign here? I don't know. I guess so. So for me, that's relatable there as someone who I'm about to become a parent seeing how do you, how do you guide a kid through that? Right. So if you're a parent watching this and you're like, man, my kid's really into athletics, like how, you know, it, it makes you start to like apply some of this stuff because everybody went to high school. Every like there's some internet, there's some like universal themes to it. Uh, but I also think that it's one of the best. I'm going to, I'm going to bring up a term from my old high school English teacher, the MacGuffin. KV, uh, are you f- familiar with a MacGuffin? A, a narrative tool, right? To, to basically advance a plot. It's like the most focused MacGuffin in, in history of like basketball is, is the MacGuffin. It's the through line, right? And so they do such a good job of keeping basketball, you know, even when they're talking about the lights getting turned off and the crack cocaine stuff, it's all in relation. There's always kind of a basketball in the scene. So it, it allows, it doesn't go off on a tangent, but it like opens up these windows that you're able to peer through and be like, oh my God, like that's a, that's a heavy topic. Like, you know, the, the older brother, you know, it's like, yeah, it kind of shows like, oh man, security guard, like homies struggling. But then like, he, they show some old footage of him just yamming, you know, like yeah. jumping yeah. out of the gym. Curtis like, could had some Jesus, explosiveness, man. man. Like, that dude, good ball. Fu- you're like, what the fuck happened? It's like, yeah, he just kind of wasn't coachable. Like, yeah. and then, but like throughout the movie, you're kind of understanding. You're like, you're, at the beginning of the movie with Curtis, you're like, how could that happen? How could he wash out? And by the end of the movie, you're like, oh my god, of course he washed out. You know what I mean? Like how, like the odds of him not washing out are. are you know, not good. So it, I just think it's, fo- it's both focused, but also like there's so much that different types of people can relate to watching the movie. I think too, one thing I would just add to that and you guys touched on pretty much everything, but I would say is that it's never exploitive and it's never judgmental. And I think that's a difficult uh, thing sometimes for filmmakers be- to do. Like we're never like sitting in judgment of the ages, you know, even when, you know, Bo, the father is a drug addict or whatever. And we're never sitting in judgment of William for having a baby, you know, that when he's 17, like, it's just, this story is being told and we're just kind of like observing as it sort of unfolds and you feel sympathy for the characters because of that, because it's like, Oh man, like, I can't believe like you have to juggle like this yet another like difficult thing. And I, you know, I think early on, like Arthur's not the super forthcoming or insightful, kid because who is really at 15 but i feel like warm towards him over the course of the film because like man like he's had to deal with a lot of shit you know it's just really sort of heartbreaking how much he had to overcome even though williams like things he had to overcome were more sort of physical the stuff that arthur had to go through was like really kind of like atmospheral and like shit that's surrounding him like literally you know not having electricity for three months like what a heartbreaking you know, awful thing. And we're never like kind of, you know, shaming the ages for it. We're just like, you know, that's, that's part of like what these people are having to endure. Yeah. And he just turns into such a magnetic dude, you know, like the, the smile and and it's like, God. And I think, you know, defining scene for me was I, I almost jumped off my couch when, when William gets an 18 on the ACT, you know, I'm just like, yeah, 
fuck you. Like, you know, the whole time you're just like, God, oh, just go to class, dude. Like, just what are we doing? Just answer all the questions, you know, like it's the ACT. Come on. Yeah. Like, I remember that for me, that awakened a lot of like that old, like the standardized testing stuff. It's just like the school stuff is, is, you know, the classroom scenes that's like, you know, that's really, that's universally relatable to everybody. You see, uh, high school classrooms. Like I don't think about high school all that much anymore. And so seeing like the, the, the halls of St. Joseph looks a lot like the halls of the Marist school, Randy, you know what I mean? It's like, Oh my God. Like, I remember that. Like, I haven't thought about that in 15 years, you know? So there's, there's just a ton that I could relate to. And I, and I feel like there's enough in there that it it's relatable to a, a lot of people. I, I think I, I, I was just, I think maybe now is a good time to add it. The one thought that for a movie like this, for it to turn out truly great, as I believe it did, you're going to have to catch some luck and you're going to have to catch some breaks as a filmmaker along the way. And it's, it's fascinating to consider. um, I I hate to say, well, I would pose this question as, as I'm saying this to you guys, whether, things kind of ended up working out well for Arthur. But I think from the filmmaker's perspective, this became such a a better film because Arthur did not stay at St. Joe's. And he came back uh, to Marshall High School and inner city school in Chicago. I, I'm just trying to, I, I spent a little bit of time trying to picture what this film would be like if both Arthur and William had stayed at St. Joseph's and, and played together. And, you know, it would have been, the, the movie would have would have obviously been much more St. Joe's focused and it just would have had a much different tenor, I believe, than with Arthur leaving pretty early on in his sophomore year. And all of a sudden you have this this wonderful juxtaposition between an inner city kid going out to the suburbs and, and trying to deal with high school and, and the recruiting process and everything that goes with that. And here's a kid that has remained in the inner city going to high school and, and how those look different and you know, quite frankly, I, I think some things that Arthur got to experience were, were probably better than what William got to experience and vice versa. Um, but but I think that's another element where surely the filmmakers couldn't have known that, but but they rolled with the punches and, and you just keep, Neil, like you said, you just keep showing up and you just keep filming. And, and in the end, they, they, you know, they had a wonderful, wonderful uh, collection of, of, of film and experiences. I think too, I, you know, I was thinking, and this kind of leads to my next question is I used to like, when I heard about this film, first of all, I was like, Oh, well, did either of these dudes make it to the NBA? Like, isn't it like less of a cool film? You know, maybe this is like the 24 year old me who's thinking this, that they did. Well, why wouldn't it be cooler if they had followed like Jawan Howard or Jalen Rose who like make very brief like appearances in this film and like the Nike camp. And now like watching it, you know, having been in media for 20, you know, five years, whatever. I, I love the fact that it is about, you know, I, I don't want to say failure necessarily, but, but about kind of broken dreams in some ways about how it doesn't always live up to the shine of the original promise. Well, it's honest, right? And I think mm-hmm. if we were to outline what, I don't think the movie, I don't think they got like 100% lucky. Like the perfect, probably the perfect way to look at it would be like one of them makes the league and one of them doesn't. Right. Or like, like one of them has a, an un, unbelievable career and, you know, it's like, um, and, and then it's juxtaposed with like, you know, the other one flaming out or, or really struggling. But 
I think if they both stayed and I, I still think that would be a very interesting documentary because you're still going to see the whole transition, the whole process of the college recruiting stuff. It probably doesn't have the same, the, the contrast is really important between the, the two different school systems and stuff. But um, you could, I guess what I'm getting at is when you, when you say this, it's like, you could argue that the, as long as it's honest, the, the film would have been good. Even if uh, you like, I think the fact that Marshall makes that run downstate is really the where they got really lucky is that, you know, Arthur's career looks like you're like, oh man, this guy's like no good junior year. And then all of a sudden it's just, he, he peaks at the right time. And that was, I think the most lucky that they probably got. If that doesn't happen, you probably, you know, where's the climax of the story? I guess you could argue that that could be a struggle. But it's still, you know, I, I still think there's enough interesting stuff in the first two and a half hours that that it, it could have been done without that. Yeah, I don't know if it gets to be transcendent uh, yeah. if that run doesn't happen. Yeah. For the movie to be called Hoop Dreams, it sucks for Arthur and it sucks for William, but it's the reality for 99.999999% of kids that dream of playing pro basketball. Like, it's 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 just that. It's a dream. And so... On the one hand, from like just purely looking at it from a film perspective, I love that neither of them turned, you know, turned into a, a great college player and and made the NBA because I, I think it, it's a lot, it's a lot more realistic in a sense that listen, the the NBA dream is just that. And I, I think where it gets really fascinating is is watching where that realization and trying to piece together like where these guys start to understand truly without explicitly saying it necessarily like uh, it's it's not going to happen and that's a sad moment for all of us you know and i i talked about like god i i reckoned with that in my own way with with big time d1 college basketball it, it's just something that we all have to go through when you have that big, big childhood dream of, of doing something. And so I, I thought it worked very well. You know, you, you could KV in the agenda, you mentioned LeBron James, LeBron's such a, a, a unicorn, but, but I don't think this film works with a LeBron James because from the time he was in eighth grade, people knew he was going to play in the NBA. And so I just don't think you could call something hoop dreams where you're attaching to somebody that like LeBron, who is destined for professional basketball. I, I, I like having these two guys and, and kind of seeing where that dream goes astray and how it dies and, and how they begin to reckon with that. And in truth, you can watch the LeBron version of this, which was actually there was a documentary about him from the time that he was in high school that like Buzz Bissinger wrote a book about. And it was this very similar thing, like, hey, we're going to turn something about this high school phenom who's 15 into a like, you know, 20 minute short for, you know, the local news or YouTube, or whatever. And the filmmakers just I think it was USC students kept going back and being like, yo, we have something really special here and followed LeBron through all four years of high school. And it's, it's good. There's certainly parts of it that are like, wow, you're really seeing like LeBron as a kid, you know, acting like a 15, 16 year old when he, you know, the whole world was already kind of projecting stardom for him, but it doesn't have the emotional resonance that this does in part because 
that's a story of like friendship. And this is a story of like, you know, you might not get everything that you dreamed of. And it's a story about poverty in a lot of ways in the United States. Yeah. And then, you know, the other piece of that, the dream, right? Like early in the movie, the way not only the kids are, you know, 100% like I'm going to the NBA, but it's also like, you know, the parents and stuff. And, and may have told you this story on this pod or told it to you guys before, but I remember vivid interaction with my father in sixth, seventh grade, you know, young Neil's playing hoops for hours in the driveway. He's sitting on the back porch. I go back there. I'm like, dad, what do you, th I, I was like, give it to me straight. What do you think the odds are that I, 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 you know, I'm going to be this, the next Steve Nash. Like I want, I want to play in the NBA. He's like, honestly, is not going to happen. Like he was just like straight up, like put a bullet in my head. I was like, well, seriously though, like, no, but like, what if I like work my ass? Off? He's like, no, I just don't, you, it's probably not going to happen. He's like, I was like, well, what sport then? Like, he, and he's like, ah, maybe tennis. You're a pretty good tennis player. But I mean, and then he starts, then he, he's like almost doing the thought exercise in his head. He's like, well, but then you're going to have to quit everything else and just play tennis. And that, even that's going to be really hard. Like, I don't think any of them. And it's like, on one hand, it's like, that's, you know, that's pretty harsh. But on the other hand, I'm like very thankful because it's like it, it, the reality uh, I don't know. Those guys go through such a, you know, it, you can just see the weight of it fall on them when like their love of basketball or when that dream starts to slip away. I think like the, you know, the, the best example of that is Curtis, you know, the older brother. And you're just like, if you're not prepared for that, you know, if you're not planning for the worst case scenario, which is the most likely one that you're not going to make the NBA, then, you know, you're setting yourself up for like, not, you know, for a better situation after, you know, hopefully you play in college or whatever. So I just think that there's some real, uh, there's some real interesting interactions there. Like it, you can never blame a kid for having that dream and you don't want to take that dream away from a kid, but it's when the, the adults almost have the same dream. Like, I, like, you know, Arthur's dad is like, I know he's going to make it. I know he's, it's like, no, he's not dude. Like, what are you doing, man? Like right. you, you kind of have he's to be 120 pounds. Here. Like he's five yeah. eleven. Yeah. <laughs> you know? So that, that stuck out to me as like, again, another like personal, like relatable thing of like, man, you know, like that's just, and then here I am looking at it from a parent's perspective a little bit too, of like, how do you, how do you balance like being realistic, but also like nurturing a kid's dream. It's just like a very tough balance as, as a kid gets to that age where it's like, you know, I got to be kind of like real with you. Santa Claus might not exist kind of thing, you know, like it's, mm -hmm. it's tough. I did a little bit of an advanced kind of reading and research on this. And I listened to probably the first 10 minutes of the hoop dreams podcast that, uh, Arthur and William eventually have did, I think debuted last year and they had Rafer Alston on it. Skip to Malou, Rafe Alston. And, you know, he, that dude was like a playground legend, like, you know, way more so than these guys. And he, one of the very first things he says was like, you were telling, you guys were telling the story of what happens in every city in America. Like, you know, there are people like me who make it, but there are so many more who do not, who are great ball players. And he's like, that's why it was like relatable for us. It was like, oh, finally somebody is speaking to the truth that we're living all the time. It was like, yeah, you can absolutely dream and and but there's only so many isaiah's you know that make it out of places like chicago the, the you know what is it cabri green cabrilli green cabrini green i think cabrini green projects yeah yeah so ray for Austin um, had to yeah. had to go to fresno state played for jerry tarkanian god he was a guy that i remember reading about he, he was he was 
this was before the internet, before social media. You know, I, mm-hmm. I remember, obviously I never saw him play on a playground, but you would just read certain articles and, and he was, he almost became this, this mythological figure. Yeah. And you're exactly right for, for a guy like Rayford to end up in the NBA is, well, he, I you mean, know, he, he, he beat he, it the odds. The, it, it's unbelievable. And one mixed and one mixtape stuff, which of course right. I was a, watched every one of those 15 times as well. But the, his, you know, the difference, you looked at all those guys, like, how are these guys not in the NBA? It's like, Rafe could shoot. That was the difference. Like, none of those guys on the and one mixtapes, like, they, none of them could shoot. <laughs> he was just, like, a lethal shooter. <laughs> but he, like, didn't even use it in the in the mixtape. You know, he's like, oh, yeah, I'm just going to go to the hoop and go the hoop, do all yeah. this crazy stuff, right? But he got, like, legit, like, awesome shooter. Guys, how do we feel like the filmmakers earn the trust of the subjects in order to depict some really, like, intimate scenes in this film? Uh, so I tried to think about this, and the, the the only kind of thing that I've been a part of that I, I'm not saying it's analogous, but maybe offered a slight glimpse into what the filmmakers went through was when we went out to Stanford uh, a few years back and and embedded with the Stanford women's golf team, and we didn't we didn't know anybody before we had got out there. Um, it was myself, DJ, and Ben. I believe so three of us, I think the first thing, and, and we talked about that week, you know, had, had we been a big crew and, and, you know, you, you got like a staff of 12 people that, that just is not going to work. Like the, we, we were saying that the girls on the team just would never have been able to get comfortable and start to, you know, act and behave as themselves as we were filming certain things. And so, I, I think it starts with a small crew. I'm guessing the the camera guys, I, I forget the three names there, KVV, but I'm guessing they probably had a good rapport amongst themselves, which helps. And then I, I honestly think, Neil, you nailed it with just, just being consistent and just showing up and showing the families and the guys that, hey, we're, we're, we're not a fly by night. We're not going to get like bored of this. And eventually you, you just, I would imagine they, how many times you're, you're just kind of chatting off camera and when things aren't, the camera's not rolling, you, you just can't help but, but build up that familiarity and, and hopefully start to gain that trust. And it really feels like that's what happened through, you know, the, the, the four years, uh, at least of on-camera stuff. I got to think it, it probably has something to do with like expectations too of like, hey, we're not, we're not going to release anything without showing it to you first, like telling them that, telling them that again, you know, to the point where everybody feels good about, like, I know we've, you know, we've had to do that with, with stuff that we do of like, Hey, we're not, nobody's trying to burn anybody here. Okay. So like, just, this isn't coming out tomorrow. Uh, like we don't even know if it's going to come out honestly. So don't even worry about it. Like that's probably some of it too, but I, I really do think it's just like time and, and being like a genuine person is probably like, the, the majority of it of like be easy to be around. Like, you know, they're probably in the room and they're probably at like, there's a lot of birthday parties and, and celebrations that they're at. They're probably having fun off camera with, with the, you know, with the family and the friends and stuff too. Like that's, that's gotta be part of this. Yeah. You, you, you as a, as a camera person, sorry, KV real quick. It, it's imperative that you fit into the situations that you're going into. If you have an outsized personality, if, if you weirdly want to, you know, talk a lot, you know, I, I, I just envision kind of, Hey, 
at least initially, my thinking would be let's let's just be seen but not be heard. You know, we're we're gonna try to stay out of your guys' way. We're you know, you tell us if you're if you're ever uncomfortable, and then you slowly, as you said, you just start to build that trust with with the people you're hanging with. But the the craziest part to me is is less like yeah, when they're in the AG's house and stuff. It's more like like the scene. One of the scenes that really stuck out to me was the camera being in on the on the meeting with the CFO at St. Joe's and when they're in the room on some of these recruiting trips like how the I'm sure and what I'm guessing is the coach is like what's what's with the camera and the family's probably like no he's with us like that that comes from like he's he's part of the squad like you're he's not going anywhere so like you either we're even having this meeting like this or we're not having it and that's crazy you know it's crazy. crazy too. Now I'm thinking about it. They they must have gotten scrubbed up, and I mean they were in the surgical theater. That was with, yeah, oh with God, William. I forgot yeah. about that. That was unbelievable. Like yeah, just I mean, to get the permissions for all that stuff. Like the you know the I mean maybe it's I'd say it's easier probably in 1987 88 to get into those situations because there wasn't a camera in everybody's pocket. You know you didn't feel like you were going to be taken out of context. You these seem like professional you know filmmakers who are piling around but you're right like the idea that they could be in the operating room and then like be in the chicago bulls training facility for the rehab and you know just step i mean that's that now like modern day feels like a malpractice lawsuit waiting Mm -hmm. to happen of like yo you filmed the surgery the surgery didn't go well clearly right (laughs) it's going to a different doctor (laughs) to do it again and it's like huh you know like i doubt that's that's happening today I think like just in, you know, speaking of my own journalism career again, like trust is something that is hundred percent, like it's innate, right? You have, they have to, you have to show up as we've talked about the thing a lot, just over and over, prove that you're invested in it, prove that you're not there to be exploitive and just have like a good energy, right? Like just be not an asshole, be not like someone who's sticking a microphone in somebody's face or like know when to like peel back and shoot from a distance as opposed to like when you have to like get up really close. You know, I just, with the end scene where Williams basketball, high school basketball career ends, you know, with him crying or whatever and stuff like that's shot from a little bit of distance, but it was also close enough to where he had to know, like those cameras were there, you know, he had, he, he's comes off the court and he's crying and the, the people are rushing the court and jumping around and like, it's devastating. And they're like, right up in in his nose almost and i feel like man if you didn't have the four years built up to that it would be like get the fuck out of my face man like this is horrible but there by that time they were sort of like you know family like it earned the trust of the mom of curtis of you know of everybody in that sort of circle if coach like coach pingator like his sort of letting them in and like really being you know saying stuff now that seems very monstrous almost you know i, I just can't believe some of the quotes that coach Pingador throws out there throughout the film, which I admire the shit out of the, what they got from his, I guess, honest takes, but man, I I just don't, I cannot imagine that would happen. I mean, Randy, we've dealt with just people recently in documentaries. I won't sort of name where they want, Oh, don't absolutely cannot let me saying anything possible that, you know, would seem even remotely negative. And here we got coach Pingador being like, well, you had a good career, but not a great career. Like, you know, I, I expected it better to be better. If you and that's know, how it happens. Play. One walks out the door and another walks in the door, you know, it's <laughs> oh just about God. playing. If you play good, you could stick around, you know, yeah. Like I got a lot to say about coach Pingator. I haven't had a few characters in my, in my life, just, just like coach Pingator. But first gentlemen, before we go on, 
you know, if you're looking for more behind the scenes content, similar to what these directors got, I have something God, for you. You're crowbarring this, this ad is it's just not hour, an hour in. I said I was going to do a house ad. I love I, I, I want to, it's a good time to update you on the no laying up email newsletter. If you aren't a subscriber, you should be, and you can sign up at newsletter.nolayingup.com. Uh, this week we send them, we send the newsletter out twice a month. Uh, and the, the edition this week, you'll find an update on our 2024, uh, event series and a fun Q and a a little behind the scenes action with the whole squad guided by, uh, our guy KVV. Uh, and then just generally updates on content updates on deals in the pro shop, all kinds of stuff. So it's a good central hub for all NLU content. Um, again, it's free. You can subscribe at newsletter.nolayingup.com. Get involved, Randy. All right. I'm out. I love Neil. I guess I love what's burning in the kill house. I love the best. putting some questions to you guys, making you dig deep on some thoughtful or funny responses. One of my favorite uh, reoccurring bits that we do. Well, guys, how do we feel about the voiceovers in this film? Uh, as the directorial choice, a necessary evil. And I, I've watched yeah. this happen to, to the pie man, especially like in the early, early seasons of strapped and Taurus sauce of like, this the the voiceovers are are a product of two things. One, you didn't get the footage, so they definitely missed stuff. Where they're just like, we gotta ugh, crap, we gotta tie, we have to transition here. And two, which DJ has talked about with us, really struggling with like on Taurus Sauce is how do you sum up like a round of golf if you're not going to show every shot? So like you hear the voiceover a lot during the playoff games where it's very important to kind of we can't waste too much time showing game highlights. And the scoreboard every 15, you know, five seconds to show the score update. So we need to we need to move this quicker, you know, over basically a highlight package. You, you kind of have to do a voiceover there. Um, so I think it's a necessary evil. I thought it was an interesting choice, though, and probably out of necessity due to, to financing that it's, you know, the, the very nerdy white voice, right? They didn't hire anybody to narrate this. Or, you know, some some famous celebrity or anything like that. It's just like, no, man, I'm just going to do it myself. And because, you know, like, we have been in the edit for two years. So this is just, this is what it's going to sound like, which I thought was kind of great. like the one change that if I could, if like, if you had, you know, carte blanche to go back and change anything. I don't think I'd change anything about the filmmaking. But I would love, like, a Sidney Poitier or, like, a Morgan Freeman or someone who could give it sort of a more intimate feel than like the professorial like nerdy you know director doing the Mar marshall part. claws that. their way back and and <laughs> ends up going up by four yeah it, you like, know, yeah there's just no juice in it it's really funny well just there is you know as someone who's done some voiceover stuff for us like there is a way to do it and there's a tone to it and you hopefully like have sort of a, a soothing kind of way about you and to me this was not it like that's very much like each time i think it maybe grew on me a little bit over the course of it but it, it pulled me out of the narrative a little bit i i don't think it ever that's that's interesting to hear you say that kvv just because i i don't think it ever bothered me neil i i think like you said it it's a necessary evil i'm just trying to think of like for instance when arthur's dad leaves the family you know obviously they weren't like around the family or filming when that happened exactly so I, i'm i'm sure they're thinking well shit how are we supposed to communicate that and really the only way to do that is with voiceover so yeah maybe maybe could have gotten a, a a better uh you know some better tones some better pipes on whoever was doing the voiceover but i from for my 
perspective. It, it didn't detract from the movie in any sense. I do think when you have a documentary that requires no voiceovers, it's almost like a, a to me, like a written piece that has no section breaks. It's like you are, you have your shit so nailed down that the transitions feel so smooth and they are telling the story without any added thing. I'm always like, damn, that's impressive. Uh, because I do think right 90% of it, these kind of things do need some sort of voiceover transition between stuff. Uh, Neil, you mentioned that St. Joe's reminds you a little bit of the Marist School. How do we feel about St. Joe's after watching this film? Uh, there's a lot of schools like St. Joe's kind of in the U.S. where, you know, they're seen as saviors in the eyes of the inner city kids. And, you know, I think we can make a decent case that William benefited a great deal from this. And we see we get to see the benefactors and the Encyclopedia Britannica people getting William a job and eventually Curtis a job. But in Arthur's case, like St. Joe's kind of ended up fucking him uh, in a pretty, I would say, cold and ruthless way, you know, holding his hostage, his transcripts for years. Uh, I'm going to turn it over to you as sort of the, you know, we, we joke a lot about the Marist School, but what do we think about schools like this and the way that they, I guess, take on inner city kids? It it's this is a very meaty one for me. Like I said, I went to a, you know a Catholic high school and it was a sports kind of, I would say powerhouse in Atlanta, like known for sports. Like if you're gonna go a factory, uh, yeah, number fifteen on Sports Illustrated's top twenty five high school programs was the little school Boom. they could. Randy, that's what they called us. <laughs> Hell yeah. Uh, and and here's so and and there's a spectrum of this right because there's others like it looks like St. Joe's and and certain schools recruit very very heavily. At Marist, it was kind of, I, I, I'm not sure about this, but the unwritten rule that I kind of observed was the football coach, very, you know, f- like legendary, uh, one of the winningest coaches in Georgia that I played for, Alan Chadwick, who's still there, and Ron Bell, who passed away three years ago, but was a legendary high school basketball coach in the state of Georgia. They, those guys got like one dude a year, right? And I remember watching over my high school career, that you'd see the kids show up in freshman year. And I would say in my four years, I would say like two of them flamed out. One flamed out immediately. Like, I guess you could say there's like eight. Right. And I would say about half of them didn't, didn't make it all the way through. And, and I, it was uh, one of the scenes from this film that I think really summed it up. And I think what these schools fail where they, where they fail, because it, 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 it does come from a good place. It's, it is a little transactional of like, yeah, you can play. So we're going to, you know, we're going to help you and we're going to get you into this school. And this, this could, in theory, on paper, this will set you up to go to college, you know, because everybody pretty much 100% of kids coming out of Marist go to college, right? That's the goal. And you're going to play for a, a, a program that's going to get you more, you know, more eyeballs, more coaches come through here, blah, blah, blah. What they fail to realize is th- that, that scene of Arthur on the subway, then on the bus, then trudging through the snow to get to St. Joe's the two hour commute or three hour total commute there and back for him every day. I remember a a kid that came to Marist and he had a two hour commute basically with traffic from, you know, somewhere like Carrollton, like way out West of the city. And it's like, at some point, just the, 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 the logistics of it. But I I feel like this, it's like, Oh yeah. Yeah. Just, he couldn't cut it. It's like, no man, this, this, you got to understand, like you're going to have to cut him some slack on some of this stuff. He can't just fit into like coach, you know, ping a tour. You can't just fit into your program seamlessly like these other kids can that, you know, live in the area. Like you, and, and that's where I get so disappointed watching like the scenes with the coach of like, there is a lot of truth in 
you know, you build these coaches, these legendary coaches build these programs and they mold the kids into their system. And if you are coachable and you do that, it, it does benefit you. But like when there's no flexibility on that, I, um, I, it makes my skin crawl of like, yo man, you gotta widen your perspective a little bit. Like you gotta understand that these kids are, are struggling with things that like you normally don't have to deal with. And you can't just be like, Oh, I don't want to talk about that. Or like, well, just, you know, don't show up for the game 20 minutes late and I bench you like he did in the playoff game. So I think like it starts from a good place. A lot of these like schools, but that, but it's hard not to take the cynical look at it of like, well, look what happens when, you know, the coach just, it, it's so easy to just like write them off and, and we're on to the next one. Um, it's hard not to be cynical about that, but, but I don't want to like, in some ways I look at that, like Pingator and, and the stuff he says, you're like, Oh my God, like, you know, over the course of the movie, you start to hate him. But I, I also hear in his voice, a, he believes he's doing good things. He believes that he's helping these kids. Like he truly believes that. Like, so you almost have to, to start at that point before you get real cynical with it. And, and, but I think there is a ton of room to be cynical and it's hard not to be. So I don't know. I probably have a lot more to say, but I, I'm going to stop ranting for now. <laughs> Big, how would you feel about uh, a private school if uh, you know it had if you had been plucked out of your school as a high schooler and and you know elevated into then your parents were struggling to afford uh, the thing, but it was your opportunity to potentially get a, a big scholarship. You know, would you look back on it fondly? Uh, that's that's such a fraught question. I, mm-hmm. I I can't put myself. We were we were we had means growing up. So I, I do not know if, if we came from low means, how that would, how that would shape my perspective. But I, but I will say it's, it's a fascinating conversation. It's a fascinating topic because one thing reflecting on my kind of basketball career and and one of the, the reasons, one of the big reasons why I think, you know, I ended up playing a few years of division three basketball and why didn't I maybe play division one basketball? I've talked about my dad. I've talked about this with my dad before is we simply, and he admits, he's like, I I simply had no idea what I needed to do for you to help you play division one college basketball. And I think what a program like St. Joe's and and a coach like Gene Pingator do is they know exactly what a kid needs to be able to play division one college basketball. And so that irregardless of, you know, where they come from and, and what type of family and socioeconomic background, what I do know is going to a St. Joe's, you're going to become part of a program. I'm sure St. Joe's probably even in the late 80s, early 90s was doing weightlifting, which, you know, at, at my small school in the early 2000s, like we didn't really lift as a basketball team, which is like mind boggling now. Right. Um, you, you, you are playing against the best of the best high school competition and you're being held to a standard right each and every day in practice in games where it's it's tough coaching it's it's what a lot of kids myself included would have needed um 
to get to a place to be able to play Division One college basketball. Now, is it easy? No, hell no. It's not easy. And I'm trying to put myself in Williams' position. Like, I'm a natural, I will butt heads with somebody that tries to coach me hard, right? I, I, I know I would have offered a lot of pushback or felt resentment for certain things. Um, and so when you do have a kid such as William who's coming from inner city Chicago and in poverty and you're putting him in a, a completely new socioeconomic situation, I can't imagine how difficult of a transition that is in and of itself. And then you layer on extreme structure within the game of basketball, which a guy like Arthur, I'm assuming a guy like William, just had never had to that point in their life. And it's it's really amazing and, and it's admirable for anybody that's that's able to stick through that. Right. And, and just to go through that for four years, because it is not easy. Um, I, I, yeah, I, I can quibble with certain things and there are certain things Jing Pingator says, like when he puts William on the spot after practice and like, you think these guys are working hard? Like that is yeah. such a shitty thing to ask. Such a a shitty kid. Thing. Like mm-hmm. there's no right answer in that situation. I honestly thought William's response was like the best thing he could have said. Yeah, it, it's 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 funny. I I feel like it's probably what I would have needed personally. Certainly, what I would have needed in retrospect to get where I wanted to go. But even when there are no promises either, even going to a school like St. Joe's, it, it doesn't mean it's automatically going to work out for you. But but it at least gives you a much better chance. Um, yeah. So I don't know. Th- those were my thoughts. Yeah. I've thought a lot about this in the coaching philosophy question. You know, thinking about like. Why did Ted Lasso resonate with so many people about like, oh, why can't coaches just be like positive and uplifting and nice or whatever? And like, I'm enough of a realist and played enough football that I don't know that that really actually translates into like hardening and molding molding an athlete to play particularly football. And I would be curious to hear your perspective, Neil, because like football can be so ruthless and so like you need to have an edge to you that I'm not sure like you're doing great kiddo. Like, you know, we love you on every single thing is going to shape you in the way that you need to be to play like football at a really high level. And so as much as I uh, grew in my early twenties to kind of resent like what I had been through with some really like, you know, hard ass, and I, I felt like dumb football coaches who just screamed at me. Like I could see how they were good at what they were doing. I just wasn't the, I maybe wasn't hard enough to be able to, you know, have it translate for me, but you know, they found success in it with other kids. Yeah. I mean, I don't play college football without going to Marist and without playing for Alan Chadwick and the Marist coaching staff. But I responded really well to being coached hard. And that's, so that's, but, but I'm also from a position where like I was, you know, I had a support system in place where that would work for me. Right. And I'm not like, I can just see my, that not going well. If it's a, I'm two hours from home and I'm, I don't know anybody else on the team. And I think somewhat, someplace I get frustrated though with that, like, yeah, coaching hard is one thing is when the, the coaches don't stop to explain after practice or like, you know, in the, 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 the meetings in the office is where I got frustrated with Pingator. The stuff on the court was sweet. Like that's fucking bullshit. What are you doing? Like, yeah, I remember that from 
basketball and football in high school. Right? That's exactly how it's supposed to be during practice. But it was just afterwards when Pingator doesn't listen. He's just, he'd ask a general question like, how are you feeling about things? And, and then he like wouldn't even let uh, William like answer before he just told him like, this is what you should do. You know, and, and it's that these these high school coaches get to the point where they're almost like the, the more so than college coaches because there's so much more job security in high school. Of they set up these like fiefdoms, and they they get old and so stuck in their ways that like they know better than everybody, and no one's going to tell them how to do their job. Instead of like, that's where I'm going with like the approaching it different based on the kid. That's where I get really frustrated with some of these guys. Is like, and and I had that frustration a little bit with with you know some of my high school coaches. Looking back, you're like these kids are are like all you want to do is make these coaches happy when you're 16 17 18 and it 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 would take just the littlest crumb of like positive reinforcement like outside of the football field or off the basketball court and it's like so hard for them to like break the you know the like the the fourth wall that they've created you know but they it's so that's that's where i i guess i get a little um frustrated but honestly it's it would take me I'd have to really sit down and even think about it more of like, like, I, I don't think that Pingator is a bad guy. I just see like the almost um, the downside of what happens when these coaches, especially back in the 90s, like these high, when these high school coaches become legends, there's like baggage that comes with that, I think, where it's like you can't take it away from him, like the program he's created and what he did with Isaiah Thomas and stuff. But throughout the movie it's just constantly referencing referencing like isaiah did this and not even isaiah was a four-time starter and it's just like hey man it's not you can't just rinse and repeat the same format to like go to the state championship like i put a lot of their early exit playoff loss on him on on hit poor i would i would agree with curtis in some ways on poor maybe curtis was right yeah he had us no i think he's got a point there right like um, you know, it's not all, it's not all his fault. I, and I, I'm sure that you can make an argument that like, yeah, you know, the team didn't gel, like there's a million things, but sometimes those coaches are like, oh, well, I could have told you this team wasn't going to make it. They just didn't have it. It's like, well, you didn't really adjust your process or, you know, your system to fit the personnel this year, big man. And that's where I get, fr- I got so frustrated in college about that. We had this coaching staff. They had us. They had. They wanted, especially the offense. They want to run their system instead of fitting the system to the personnel that you fucking recruited. You know, it's like I, I hate that when coaches are inflexible with their system. Um. So anyway, again, I'm going to start ranting again. But that's no. I love. I love your rant still. I, we should point out that Coach Pingator does have the most wins of any high school basketball coach in the state of Illinois. He won a thousand and thirty five games. Won two state championships uh, in 1999 and 2015. I reached out to a buddy of mine, Jeff, who is a high school basketball coach now, who a guy friend from high school that's now a coach in Atlanta. And I, you know, it's like, hey, I just we're doing a pot on hoop dreams. Like, do you have any, you know, any thoughts? And one of his first was like, he's like, Gene Pingator is a legend, but he probably spent the next 10 to 15 years almost apologizing for that movie. Like, it, it kind of clouded the end of his career, and and he, you know, he felt like it was a I don't know if he felt like it was an unfair portrayal, but like I think it may, probably made him look in the mirror a little bit on, like, man, this doesn't, this isn't a great look for me. Um, which you know, that's probably a good thing. Honestly, if you had Isaiah Thomas on your high school basketball team and you didn't win a, a, a Chicago State Championship or an Illinois State Championship, you probably might have had to look in the mirror a little bit because Isaiah was unbelievable uh, basketball player. So. Interesting thought exercise, I guess, in general about uh, whether, I, you know, I, 
being a dick, be screaming pushes kids or whether it actually like hurts them in the long run. As somebody who more recently spent time in the high school basketball scene, I, I think coaches like Gene Pingator, like this is a great time capsule for that old school crusty coach, which I think are going the way of dinosaurs these days. I, I mean, at, at least a lot of places around the country. I, I mean, with with parent involvement and now with AU and, and students, you know, just like we see at the college level, kids, you know, the ability to, to switch schools even in high school now. Guys like him just, you, you, you can't be that old school, crusty, badass type anymore and expect to do well in today's environment, I don't think. Well, I think that it, and it kind of feeds into your next question of like, you know, it, was the high school basketball scene better back then before the rise of AAU? I, I kind of saw this with my high school career. I played, you know, basically Marist was a football school, but the basketball, we had a really good basketball program, a really good football program, but both these legendary, you know, coaches almost made the kids pick. By the time I, you know, in, in the 90s, there were a lot of guys that played both sports, but by the time I was in high school, it was like, and and it was it was more so because of the off season commitments they were asking you to do like football coach wants you in morning runs in the weight room all summer and passing league and 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 that and then you know I tried to do it heading into my sophomore year and then the basketball coach has six to nine we have three hour you know in air quotes practice like open run but basically he's running like a freaking in season practice in an unair conditioned gym. And I was like, I was like coming home and like throwing up from dehydration. I like, I got so like crazy overwhelmed. And I remember it vividly walking into Ron Bell office and, he, and, and saying like, coach, I'm, I'm, I'm quitting. And my voice is quivering. Like, I was terrified. I felt I was letting him down, me down. Can't believe I'm quitting on basketball. My first love. I just, but the, the demands of the off season were just too much for me to do both. And I think, and I really struggle with that in just youth sports in general, the, the, the push towards specialization and try and, and basically being like, if a kid was like, Hey, I can't make it, you know, if I had said to him like, Hey, I can't make it to summer basketball, I would have been blacklisted. So it was basically either you, you're all in or you quit, you know, it's kind of the, the decision is forced upon you. And, uh, and then, you know, funny enough, Ron Bell ends up retiring my junior year and I go back and play. I just joined the basketball team my senior year, you know, and, and I, and by the time I go play as a senior, like games too fast for me, I've been, you know, I'm not, I, I six man for a little while and then end up riding the bench, but it was a great experience. It kept me out of trouble senior year, but it just sucks that it was un like, it was untenable to really excel at both. And I really did, even as a 15, 16 year old, I was like, I have to pick one. And that sucks because you know, you kind of wish it probably makes you, makes for more well-rounded athletes at the high school level yeah. if they can play both. Well, one of the things I really love is like teachers who are and coaches who are in it just to teach and coach, like just to actually like have kids have a good high school experience. Right. And I got more of the vibe out of that from the MacArthur coach, whatever in the thing. Luther like, Bedford. He's, yeah. He's, I awesome. really like Luther Bedford. He said such a, you know, I could tell like he, he was a stern disciplinarian without being like a fuckhead about it, you know, without like he was trying to basically like keep these kids out of trouble and keep them, you know, focused for, you know, longer periods of time and keep them from, you know, 
make sure they graduate high school. And I think in my experience, I have such love and admiration for like inner city coaches because I feel like, man, you aren't getting paid shit and the resources are terrible. And you are there basically like as a part-time social worker who is just saying like, I, if no one else is like going to step up, I'm going to step up and do this. And I have friends who I, you know, uh, I was a, a coach in particular now coaches at Carver used to coach at Edmondson high school. And we, we've remained friends all these years because he of this series that I did years ago where he was like, basically like Kev, I'm just trying to keep these kids alive from one day to the next. If I can get them into college, that's amazing. And that's going to get them out of Baltimore. And it's going to, hopefully they'll come back to Baltimore and they'll give back at some point. But the, my number one goal is like, make sure these kids don't join like a drug cartel here. And I just, he has been such a, like an inspiration to me over the years because he's just like still grinding like over and over. And when the, Riots broke out in Baltimore, you know, the Freddie Gray stuff. He was like, he was working up in Delaware and he drove, he got in his car immediately, drove down to Baltimore. And he's like, I'm going to be on the streets. I'm going to be pulling kids off the corners and be like, get your ass or home. You know, and he was such a, like a, a such a cool thing to start experience. Like, yo, this is my community and I'm going to go ahead and step up for it. And that's what just, you know, the, the coach, the, what's his name again? Big, I, sorry. I Luther, Luther Bedford. Luther, yeah. I, I could see a lot of that. My guy, Dante Jones. Uh, I can see some of Luther Bedford in in him and vice versa. So, so big shout out to him. So that's totally agree with everything you're saying, KBV. I, I, this was one of the more uh, thought provoking and I thought fascinating juxtapositions within this movie is I think you can see William falling out of love with basketball through his high school experience. And you can see Arthur almost becoming more in love with basketball by the end of his high school experience. And I think that's no small thing. I, I, I think as, as a high school coach, I, I firmly believe unless you truly are at one of these big academies where everybody knows the expectation and the reason that you are there is to try to, you know, go on to play big time college basketball absent that, I think the best thing a coach can do is to keep that love alive for whatever sport you're coaching. And I thought nowhere was this better on display. It, it was a quick, quick scene, but you can see uh, St. Joe's, the team bus going to a game, everybody silent, coaches kind of not yelling, but sternly telling you, you're thinking about, Think the, about game the game yeah. on the way to the game. <laughs> And then they flash to the Marshall bus and, you know, it's loud. It's the kids are talking, they're, they're having fun. And I thought, why, why is that? And I don't know if this is right, but my hypothesis is you get into more affluent communities and, and your needs and your worries aren't like you have food, you have a nice place to live. You, you, you aren't worried about, crime you, you aren't worried about everything that comes with you know a life of poverty and so it, it 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 takes your focus like solely into basketball and you can almost get too ab absorbed into the game to where you put undue um it, it just becomes the only thing that matters whereas you juxtapose with coach bedford like these kids are just trying to survive day to day and I, I think Coach Bedford lives with much more of a perspective of where high school basketball fits into the lives of his children than Coach Pingatore well, does. Well, and some of that, that's an awesome point, Randy. And I, I would say some of that with the St. Joe's vibe is 
you're also now um it becomes like we we have a tradition to carry on which i had a lot of at my high school of like don't be the first team it's a lot of don't be the first team to miss the playoffs don't be the first like hey that you know Tron's year, Sean McVay, we won the state championship. What are you guys going to do, right? Like, don't let us down kind of vibe. And it kind of comes from the from the top, like, right from, and, you know, it's almost like they're, uh, again, there's baggage with that that legacy and when those these coaches become legends. And they deserve the credit for that longevity and that success, but it has, I don't know, it just has consequences a little bit for, like, the fun. It's like, yeah, it's not really, it kind of turns into a machine of, like, we, you know, we got to keep winning or else like it's going to embarrass the program. Right. And, and instead it was like, remember like junior year with, with Marshall, it's like, they, they go like six and 16 is like, yeah, whatever. You know, it's just like, uh, yeah, I don't know. And then I got the, the coach had such some, some prescient stuff too, about the um, senior year, the semifinal team, I think it was King who had the seven footers and their recruiting. He's like, yeah, yeah. Man, I these, guys, these guys out here recruiting like, like that, like, man, like let's keep it in perspective basically. Like, and then he says like, this is going to keep happening and it's going to get worse, but I'm not going to be around to see it, you know? And it's like, God, that's like, couldn't be more true. Uh, incredible, incredible stuff from the, from that coach. Well, he gives such a great speech to at the end of like, Hey, you know, we're proud of you. You know, you're all, you're going to remember this. The school's going to remember this. Uh, it's just such a, a good contrast between like the devastation of St. Joe's, you know, playoff, you know, upset versus, you know, the, they're just really proud of kind of, I mean, it's went a little, little different in terms of how far they went, but I just, you know, it made me feel really warm towards uh, Marcus, excuse me, Arthur's coach guys. We, we talked a little bit about Spike Lee being in this, but I, I was sort of maybe had me flash in my mind, like how would this doc be different? if Spike Lee directed it. I don't actually think it would be better, which is a weird thing to say, but I'll turn it over to you before I kind of give my reasons for it. That's a tough one. From my perspective, I'm not sure Spike's version would have been better. The only thing I really thought was, I I think St. Joe's and Coach Pingator probably would have looked a lot worse in Spike's version. I, I, I think he would have probably drilled into how they were treating Arthur and how things and why things went the way they did. Um, I would other, say, like we said yeah. at the top, the, 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 the producers and directors that created this, they, they didn't really seem to have an ulterior motive other than like, let's just show up and record what we see and then we'll splice it together. Like even the way they, they cut the film, it doesn't really, and I feel like spike for better or worse is going to have a, he's going to have a, you know, a perspective. Right. And that's a narrative. Spike wants to say something. You want, he's going to want to make a statement instead of just letting it basically, Hey, here's what we shot. What do you guys think? It's going to be like, no, we need to go hard. Like these are the, this is the story. Right. So I don't know if he would use, uh, uh, basketball is the MacGuffin, and and I think it would be a little bit more of like uh, a spear that he's going to throw at you. Do I, I thought one of the interesting things, KV? I'll set you up for this question. At the end of the film, Earl Smith, the 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 playground scout who helped funnel Arthur and others to uh, these suburban private schools, talks about the the heat and the blowback that he received and and was receiving from 
members of the black community. I, I think that's maybe something that Spike would have kind of drilled in and, and examined. Um, and I'm not sure Spike would have been a huge fan of Earl, quite honestly, but that, that was another area. I think Spike's really interesting, uh, I guess, perspective is about writing about like the sort of destructiveness of systems, right? And I think it, a lot of times that can be almost overt in his filmmaking. And I think that this movie works in a lot of ways is because those messages are really subtle throughout. Like I don't need someone banging me over the head with the idea that like, you know, Coach Pingator is a monster. Like I can sort of see that and also understand that there's some nuance there to where like it's easier for him to be a monster in like an actual movie, right? And, and there's a lot of stuff in He Got Game where the characters are cartoonish in that way because they're trying to sort of have a very specific point of view to come across of like, hey, the Jesus Shuttleworths of the world are being absolutely fucked and exploited for by the system that's, you know, corrupt and is sort of taking advantage of of young, you know, African-American men. And I think that those lessons are, those points are certainly still exist in Hoop Dreams, but there's also this kind of a subtlety of like, yeah, you know, like people make choices within the individual systems and those choices sometimes lead to good and sometimes lead to bad as well. And so I think Spike's job as a filmmaker is different than, I mean, he's made documentaries, but I think like he's better at sort of presenting a very strict point of view. And I, while I think you could make a perspective of, man, this film would have been really interesting if it had, you know, if it was like an inner city Chicago person who made this film, uh, you know, whether it was like a John Singleton, obviously, you know, he's from Los Angeles, but like something like that would have been a, a really fascinating way to look at it. But uh, ultimately, like sometimes he said, like the happy accident of art is that these three dudes were willing to invest this much time and energy and present it in a way that makes us still worth talking about 30 years later. And and I think like I like I love he got game. I like a lot of Spike stuff, but I, I really appreciate that. I was it, it wasn't telegraphed to me like this guy's a villain. This is the antagonist and this is the protagonist, right? It's like like when we see our guy at the beginning, uh is it Earl, the, the Earl, fixer? Yeah, Earl Smith. My my initial reaction is like, "Yeah, I don't really like this." <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like I can kind of make that decision for myself, but then I also appreciate that at the end of the movie, the directors almost give him a chance to say it in his own words, right? And I think that's almost more powerful. Same with uh, the most I mean, heartbreaking and powerful scene that, and we haven't talked about it is the playground scene in the middle of the movie when Arthur's playing pickup hoops and his dad is, you know, like copping crack cocaine on camera in the background, waving money around like, you know, and it's just like, here it is. That's like, you guys kind of decide, but then that's presented, but it also is like, I find his father to be, I have a lot of sympathy for him too throughout the movie, you know? So, and, and I, I would worry a little bit that Spike would like, nope, this guy's bad, right? Like we're going to, we're going to make sure we're not going to confuse you. Like, don't, don't get it twisted. This is, you know, he is, he is doing his son a disservice, which is true, but that's not the whole story. So I, I feel like we got the, you know, everything that they saw, I felt like we saw, and that's, that feels authentic, which I like. And I, I would just maybe underscore all those points in saying the first time I watched this, I was probably in high school. I had hoop dreams of my own. And so much of this nuance and really 
peeking behind the curtain of a lot of these characters was lost on me. And now as a 40-year-old going back and watching this, I can understand a lot of what's untold and unsaid in this movie. And so if anybody, you know, if, if you haven't watched this movie, if you're listening and, and you haven't watched it since, you know, your teens or early in your childhood, go back and watch it because I, I think you can get such different things from this movie, which is a credit to the filmmakers. hundred percent. I, one of the things in you know researching this is, uh, when the Oscar Oscars controversy happened, when it didn't get nominated, like Ebert, Gene Siskel and Roger Ebert were both really pissed off about it. Being Chicago guys, I think they you know took some of it very personally, and they kind of revealed that the Oscar like process for films getting nominated is like all these critics would sit in a like movie theater and or the, all the people in the Academy vote. I guess not film critics, but people within the Academy, and they would watch the movie, and when people someone grew bored of the movie and like gave up on the film they would shine a flashlight up on the screen to basically indicate like i'm done and what they were revealed is that people all these like people in the academy shine their flashlights in hoop dreams when they original sort of screening of it after 20 minutes they basically just gave up and so they didn't even watch the entirety of the film they just before deciding whether it was oscar worthy or not and it was like revealed like a clear kind of you know, obvious systematic racism to the whole thing. It was like, oh, well, there's some films that we're going to give a chance, whether these foreign language films or whatever that are sort of art house. And and this, you know, I think it was a really kind of revealing thing. So it's like, I'm really glad that while, you know, obviously like the film didn't, you know, maybe it was talking about Spike Lee being the director or whatnot, but like it did have like champions. It did have people who were basically like, no, this story really needs to be told. And frankly, the whole process of like how we nominate films is fucked up. So let's take a look at that too. I, you know, I read some stuff in addition to this that talked a little bit about um, when the AG family had their lights turned off for three months that the uh, the producers, the filmmakers actually like went and paid to have them turn back on eventually because it was sort of unclear if this was ever going to happen. I feel like fresh out of journalism school, I would have been like, oh, that is so like ethically wrong. Like you cannot do that. And like years later, I think now I have like a very different perspective. I, I think like the humanity of the people that you are trying to write about is way more fucking important than like something that's drawn up in the classroom discussion about like what are ethics. Uh, I guess I wonder like how important is total independence from your subjects like this? Like would you – there was a big rule for a long time in journalism like, oh, we don't – you won't ever see like what we've shot until – uh, you see it in the theaters with everybody else. We have to maintain total independence, whatever. And now, as years gone by, that's kind of been loosened. You know, there's a lot of like I, they. I know for this certainly that wasn't true. They screened it for the families. I think they had like a 10 hour cut that they originally screened for the families. But there's some people, some journalism hardos who would say like, no, 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 like you have to just document like what the family's going through anyway. You know, if they don't have light in, in their house or heat in their house for six months, like that's part of the story. And I kind of feel like, yeah, that's easy to fucking say. But like when you have the means to actually like help out these people and turn back their lights on, like I would kind of just be like, you know what? Fuck this kind of nonsense. Like this is this something kind of goes beyond the bounds of that. But maybe that makes me a bad journalist. I don't know. No, I don't think so. I mean, I, I think it's such a gray area with this stuff because I don't like this specific anecdote. I have no issue with. Right. I think it goes back to like, how do you earn the trust? Like, honestly, how do you keep the project going? 
right? The lights got literally the lights got turned off. All right, well, uh, we can't really do much until we turn the power back on. So maybe we can help with that, like, and just being a good human. But on the flip side, I think an issue with a lot of the documentaries out today is is the final cut problem of, you know, everybody, every athlete now has their own production company. And if they're going to do any type of documentary or, you know, talk show or whatever, they're going to have a final say over what questions get asked and, and what goes into it. So how do you balance that is like that? It is a slippery slope in some ways, but it almost just takes like a human, you just kind of have like kind of a human perspective on it, I guess you take it case by case. I don't think you can write like black and white ethical journalistic guidelines for this stuff anymore because like, yeah, access stuff does matter. And, you know, making sure that people trust you leads to them being authentic on camera. So, but yeah, but then it, yeah, man, some of these documentaries like going out, like, I don't know. It's like the the swamp. The one about the Florida Gators with with Urban is just it, it's it's trash. It's fucking trash because none of like it's just not a fair. It's not a it's it's not an actual view of what's going on or what happened. Yeah, the Johnny the Johnny Manziel thing, like just a total like promotional vehicle, not a yes, documentary. It's, yeah, it's way. a PR piece instead. And so uh, like I I wish we could write some guidelines around that, but it kind of just depends on like who's doing the project and, and setting those, figuring that out as early as possible and, and trying to hold the line, I guess. Don't disagree with anything. I, I think me personally, I would have a hard time sleeping at night if I knew I could help this family literally just turn their power back on for the sake of some video. Like, I, I don't think, I hope I would think the video project wouldn't be worth causing the family to go through even more pain and suffering than was really necessary for what the video for for what the project I'm trying to do entails you know uh, so I in the, in that particular instance like I'm very glad the producers stepped in and, and helped the family out yeah I guess it also goes it speaks a little bit to subject matter too of like there's an obsession and I think it's because it it leads to views and stuff is like a lot of the documentaries getting made now are about famous people who then have the leverage to dictate terms. Whereas this is about, you know, basically un until the movie was made, people, no one anonymous people. Right. So, so the, the leverage is flipped a little bit maybe, but yeah, I guess maybe those are, that's, I would rather, rather watch more of this and less of the, the former, but I, I, again, I'm not privy to what moves the needle for Netflix subscriptions. Do you think the producers talked about paying Arthur's tuition? Because I think that's probably an interesting journalistic question. Uh, I'm sure that sprang up during filming. Sure. I wonder if they talked more, less about paying his tuition, but paying to release his transcripts uh, there where, you know, it, I mean, that to me was like one of the most infuriating things where there, the St. Joe's people are like, well, look, you know, we we need this. We need our fourteen hundred dollars so you can pay us, you know, one hundred and forty three dollars a month. I think it was eighteen hundred twelve dollars and eleven cents, uh, yep. broken out into payments of one hundred and eighty one dollars a month. That was where I was like, you know, this is fucked. Like, just just wave. I this. just felt the same way. You know, yeah, this is such a stupid thing, especially after like, you know, they made some promises, whatever that they were gonna 
cover half his tuition, the family covered the other half, and then he didn't cover the raise in the tuition the next year or the books or anything like that. And so they started to fall behind and fall behind more. And it's just like, man, like at this point, this is, you know, he hadn't, Arthur hadn't been there for three, four years. So what are we really like gaining? Like is, is St. Joe's not going to be able to balance its books if they don't write off this $1,800 loss? No, like they're, they're fine. They can have the Encyclopedia Britannica people, or they can raise money at a bake sale. Or they can do whatever for this. I, I you know, I, that just was kind of. Are you a Catholic school? Are you actually like sort of you know reaching out and and you know subscribing to the doctrine of like helping the needy and the poor and whatnot? Like that was just a very frustrating. Or like, hey, <laughs> hey, Coach Pingator, do you have eighteen hundred bucks? Like, maybe a good spot for you to to step up and yeah. and help the family. Yeah. It was funny to watch Coach. Ping it toward the end, be like looking at Arthur, be like, I wish we had that point guard. Oh my God. That was another scene I, I had listed as as just a uh unbelievable moment of like it, what the then the the thing that frustrates me about Pingator is like it all it immediately can, becomes about him. Hey, well, stay in touch. Like, let me in, let me yeah. help you with the, the college experience, you know, the college decisions. Like, fuck off, dude. Like you, you're not like with just that, that attitude of like, I know better at all times is, is where that, that legendary coaching stuff starts to get so frustrating for me of like, dog, take the L on this one. All right. Like you're not, Oh, let me mentor you again. It's like, no man, no, it's just front running. You know, that's yeah. what I mean. It's like, dude, had you, had you paid to like release his transcript that, that would have showed you truly care about the, the, the person, the individual. Right. And, and his words at the end of the movie then would have carried so much more weight. It's but, truly, well, it's and you could same, tell, it's the same thing. Like I got real frustrated. I get real frustrated with the college coaches these days of like the whole scandal happens at, at Ohio state with, let's go back to urban Myers. Perfect example. These guys are leaders of men. It's their fiefdom. The buck stops with them on everything. And then all of a sudden something like this happens, the tuition thing for coach Pingator, my hands are tied. I, I, you know, yep, you, you are the master yep. of your domain until it's like, ah, yeah, I just, I mean, rules are rules, you know, it's like, fuck that, man. I hate that. Yeah. yeah. No, and certainly, like, there are coaches who do act on the behalf of the kids. I mean, I don't think we want to paint, like, all legendary coaches this way, but it is frustrating to see uh, that attitude play out. Because, you know, I, I think I can't remember whether it was William's uh, – not was not, Arthur's father said, you know, if he worked out – maybe it was his mother. Like, if he had worked out as a basketball player, they would have found a way to keep him in school. Like, if he wouldn't – if he developed the way that they thought, of course they would have – they would have had some other benefactor be like, yo, we got this kid. We got to have him. You know, he's the next Isaiah or whatever. And you could tell the way Pengator treated William differently after the knee injury. You know, he just – he was, like, asking him, you know, hey, William, these guys aren't competing hard enough. Hey, William, make sure you take it easy. And then when his knee got hurt, he's like, well, you know, you're just – you're terrible. You're not, you're scared. You're not, you know, what you're supposed to be. Like you, you just don't have the same confidence anymore that you used to. Well, no shit coach. Like, cause you probably made him run gassers with a freaking torn knee car. Yeah, and just like hours. the, Hey, you know, it's up to you, man. How do you feel? You want to play? It's like, no man, like, don't, you're the coach. It, like you should be the, be the should. adult in the room. And then I think in that scene at the end, when, when Pingator and, and Arthur meet after the loss, I think there's, I, I don't, this is me projecting, but I almost think in his, in his eyes, he's like, oh, holy shit, you grew. Because early in the movie, we kept saying, or like, yeah, he keeps saying like, when are you going to grow? When are you going to grow? It's like, yo, check it out. He did grow. And that's when Pingator was like, oh, damn, you grew. Like, I, you know, God, that's, it's so frustrating. Yeah. Uh, guys, when William signs the uh, letter of intent with Marquette, uh, 
He says, oh, is there any cash that comes with? <laughs> that scene kind of made me laugh out loud, considering the state of college basketball or college sports now. Uh, that joke, like 30 years later, isn't that that's sort of exactly what happens when kids sign now? I mean, I, I guess we could debate back and forth whether things are better or worse now than they were then. I mean, certainly kids aren't being completely exploited uh, without some compensation in the way that they were in a billion-dollar industry. But, I, you know, I just kind of wondered if that made you guys laugh the same way it did for me just because of the sort of prescient nature of like, hey, is there any money with this? Like, now we got NIL It, it definitely did, and it made me wonder if there was any talk or any stuff about uh, payment that they yeah, did the, not the put into the documentary and, based on the consequences of that for, like that could have created a lot of blowback and maybe they thought wasn't worth it right like with that i kind of was like with the abcd camp the the marquette coach actually had a, some really good interviews up in the rafters and said like hey man this is this is a business like just like a banker if i don't if we don't get wins if they don't if they don't close business they get fired if we don't get wins i get fired and and i you know it, go, it gets at the soulless nature of college sports, but I honestly appreciate it when coaches talk in that manner instead of the, no, these guys are getting so much value. It's the scholarship. You know, we really care about the kids. We're molding men. It's like that. I take all that bullshit away and just like give it to me straight, man. Like that. I appreciate that. I thought it'd be fascinating what they left on the cutting room floor in terms of uh, it was Kevin O'Neill was the Marquette coach at the time in that recruiting process. But I will say, I thought they both the coach and the school came off looking pretty well through it all, especially with the postscript. You know, William kind of struggled at Marquette, quit the team for a year, but they never revoked his scholarship, which yeah. being they a big time right? college uh, yeah. basketball program and remembering coach promising his family, like good on them for at least keeping him on scholarship, allowing him to return to the team for his senior year, um, where it, it certainly could have gone the other way where oh you don't want to play him okay your scholarship's gone and william drops out and who knows what happens with his life then but yep and then the, yeah, the whole uh junior college system and and subculture I, I not something i'm super familiar with but man some of those recruiting pitches and and visits the, the junior college stuff and, and watching the netflix documentary on the on the you know last chance you stuff is i found that to be a documentary that I do find, you know, very interesting, especially the early seasons of that. I mean, what a, what a uh, tough world that can be, you know, and, and it, it is in theory, it is, a, it is a second chance and it is an opportunity, but it just, you start to see like, man, you're starting at a way down the mountain here. It, it's stacking the, the deck against you. And that recruiting visit with that junior college coach for, for min mineral, what was it? Uh, <laughs> mineral area. Mineral area. Junior the thin little mustache. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, just God. like, so what, you know, like you're going to sign, sign it. You know, it's just like, oh man, that's a tough, like tough. Uh, oh. That was a tough scene for me to watch. And just how bleak that scene was in general. Like, you know, our, the mom and dad have split up, but the dad comes back to sort of help, you know, advise the family on the decision. And it's just like, and they, they're so unhappy. They're, they seem so miserable that this is kind of what well another like personal anecdote i remember before i signed with columbia went on a recruiting trip to the school and i remember that our my head coach norris wilson who i really liked but i remember the pressure that he put on me in that same situation on site are, are you going to sign 
And I remember before we went into that meeting on that Sunday after the recruiting weekend, my dad said to me, we're not signing anything. Okay. So we're going to say, we're going to, we're going to ask for a day to think about it. And that's what you're going to say. And, and it, it, I remember it was like, all right, cool. That's the plan. And I did that. And it was like, because before, like there's probably 12 other kids on this recruiting trip and they would all go, you'd all go back into the room with the coach and you'd come out and the kids that sign, they'd be like, he signed and everybody would clap. And it's like peer pressure, you know? And so then I come out and it's like, I didn't sign. It's like, it's basically like silent booze. <laughs> That's what it sounded like in my head was just a chorus of booing, you know, like all oh, loser, you know? And, and, but I said, I was like, I, no, I, I want to go home and I want to talk about it with my parents and I will let you know within the next, you know, 24 hours. And I did, I called him the next morning and said, I'm in. But I think that that was like, juxtapose that with, with Arthur's dad being like, him and Han basically coming to the same point, like four times of like, it's your call. It's your call. Well, he's, he's 18. He doesn't know what to do here. You know, like there's no the guidance don't either. That's what's crazy. You I, know, that's true. And, and that's nothing that. against the, yeah. the ages. It's like, that's going that's back to point, like talking right? to my dad, my dad, he's like, I just had no idea. I, I didn't know what I didn't know. And, and that's hard for anybody. And I feel like my dad would probably tell you the same thing. Like we didn't know what we were doing, but I think his, his thought was like, Hey, I don't think we should say yes right here. Like I, I want you to have a, you should always sleep on a big decision it was almost more of just like him, him taking general advice probably from his dad and saying like, why don't we sleep on this one? You know, like let's just buy some time. Well, good for your dad to do for having the sort of, you know, acumen of that. Like it's a, it's a relationship where you don't hold any power uh, once you sign. Like well, you, I mean, you hold than, the sort of power yeah. in that moment till until you sign your name over. Oh. So making them sweat a little bit is good. Like it, it shows you that like you're a commodity and you actually deserve to have some rights in that situation. It's truly couldn't have said it better. Like the Jekyll and Hyde of the college coaches on the recruiting trips versus what they're like when you get there is jarring, very, very jarring. If anybody that's going through the recruiting process now, uh, warning there. Uh, or I would say uh, there's so many examples in life like that. I, I found, I'm not sure. I know Neil, I don't think you were part of a fraternity, but it, same thing with like fraternity or sorority rush. And then once you start pledging, it's just like, Oh yeah, you guys were just blowing smoke up my ass all this time. Yeah. And, and now, yeah, now I get to see what it's actually like. Um, but other than who you, who you marry, I mean, like picking where you're going to go to college is kind of like the most, I'd say second most important thing. It kind of sets up like your circle of probably people for the, you know, for the, at least the early parts of your adult life. And so, yeah, it's like it's, don't, being just watching these kids get rushed into those decisions and, and get leaned on and sold is, um, I haven't thought about that process in a long time. And it took me back to like when I was kind of going through that and it's, it is, it's a lot of pressure, man. And it's, it's kind of hard to watch it with, um, I don't know, kids that don't have the support system around them. So anyway, two, two quick points on the college before we move on. Uh, it's, it's really interesting to think probably minus a knee injury. You know, there, there's a universe where perhaps William Gates is part of the fab five at Michigan. I mean, he was in that same exact class. And then I also want to say with Arthur, for how kind of shady and seedy the junior colleges seem, props to him and I would say the junior college for getting him to a Division One basketball program. He went on and played played for two years at Arkansas State, which honestly, for most of the movie, 
it is a pretty incredible win for Arthur. I, I Help, mean, that, for sure. I would not have thought that for long portions of that of, of the documentary. Yeah, I you know I think I put this in the gen earlier, and I think we've addressed it a little bit, but like I wasn't even sure if he was actually a good basketball player for like the first <laughs> couple of years of his high school career. I was like, wow, what a what a stroke of bad luck this was that the playground phenom that they had is like actually not even a starter on the inner city basketball. Yeah, team. I will say as a, if I was going to give a critique of the the film, I think their their video work of basketball in the games is is not good. Like you don't even with with William, like you get a sense they did a really good job with the gym and the vibe and how important high school athletics really is to to communities across the country. So I think that's a, you know, but let's say that's a pro on the con side. They're just the angles of them, the way they film plays. And it's probably just like equipment based of like trying to keep up with, you know, the, like they they don't uh, I don't know. They don't um, like I thought some of the best basketball footage was like game film of Curtis dunking you know getting like high up angles and like the you know the, like how you would watch game film you know if you're scouting a team and and most of their footage is just like from like under the basket and it's like guys are coming in and out of the frame and and you know it doesn't really give you a sense of uh if these guys are good or not so i think that's a fair like question kvv for sure one of the things you know big you talked about this about how you picked up on subtle things watching this now as a 40 year old I guess I didn't really grasp like how much like Michael Jordan sort of looms over this entire film uh, and just what an incredibly important cultural figure he was. You know, he they talk about Isaiah a lot, but like these kids are really obsessed with Jordan. They're wearing Jordan sneakers, they're wearing Jordan clothes. Jordan's poster is in every single room. I mean, there's I bet you could count up 50 shots where there's a Jordan poster in the background. You know, it begins with Jordan highlights. And I kind of almost really liked that they didn't really talk a lot about Michael Jordan, but that he was just there in Chicago. Like it was just this sort of like aura of like, this is the God of this era of basketball. And, you know, I lived through, you know, most of Jordan's prime, Neil, you probably, you know, were a little young for some of it, but it just, it's hard to contextualize when people are like, oh yeah, LeBron, Jordan, you know, Jordan was such a bigger cultural figure than LeBron James in my mind. And I, I, maybe that's biased to me, but he was just like the most famous American period. And it just, for these kids to sort of have that in their own city to, you know, never have any chance of like going to a Chicago Bulls game, but for him to be like out there, I think was, you know, hanging over all this was remarkable in, in that sort of scene setting kind of way. It's it's funny because when I first read the agenda and I saw that question, I mentally I was like, oh no, I disagree. I, I think Isaiah is the one who was briefly involved early in the film, but I, I thought Isaiah looms over it more. I, I think to your point though about about Michael Jordan, he, he's just like he's the biggest thing in basketball. So his his cultural relevance is just unparalleled. But I do think it's it's Isaiah who is was the trailblazer from inner city Chicago, St. Joe's, onto college, onto the pros. I, I I think I think it's Isaiah who all these kids are like, well, if Isaiah could do it, why can't I? Whereas I think Michael Jordan's just like, 
oh, he's the best player in the NBA. Like, the the where, dream of being Jordan was almost too big, right? Exactly. They could have contextualized Isaiah, but Jordan was like, you know, another exactly. whole other level than that. Uh, yeah. That's, I think, a fair uh, re- response to that. Um, you know, I'm some of these scenes like feel almost almost too intimate in some ways, whether, you know, I, I mean, we could sort of pick them out. I wonder like if, if any of the, the subjects were almost like, Hey, can you get lost? Like, you know, can you please not film this, you know, at any point along the way? I mean, I, there had to be moments where they did, but maybe not. I mean, it's, I've never, I haven't read anything in any of the sort of follow-ups about it where they basically told the cameras to go away. In fact, you know, there's a lot of uh, funny discussion written about how, Arthur and William were actually like pretty good friends and they would like hang out and play basketball on the weekends. But the filmmakers didn't even know that until, cause they could only show up, you know, a couple days a week or whatever. And they were just, they didn't really realize that they were actually like tight. And they were like, why didn't you actually tell us? And they were like, Oh, you know, we just wanted to like have that time to ourselves. We figured you were around enough as it was anyway. And like, I, <laughs> Sort of shocking which, to read that. Which threw me off when Arthur wants to go to William's game. I was like, why would he yeah. want to go to the St. Joe's game? Yeah. So, And then after the game, they're hugging. I'm like, oh, I guess they, I, you know, that was a surprise to me as well as a viewer. I, I, The one scene that sticks out to me, I cannot believe the St. Joe's CFO was like, yeah, bring the camera in for this for this <laughs> finance meeting. I just don't know how that happened. That that yeah. blew me away. Yeah. I I. I just did. I did want to sort of throw out that, like any scenes in particular that stand out to you that really feel like, you know, moving, whether from the first time or the second time you saw them uh, in particular. Well, I thought, I thought Arthur's mother was probably the, the mm-hmm. character that was just most consistently the power, the, the most powerful for me. Uh, and if there was somebody who had the right multiple times to tell the camera guys to get lost uh it it would have been her in my eyes i mean her husband leaves he's he's strung out she's obviously trying to to patch together finances make it work for the family the power gets shut off i mean i cannot imagine uh arthur's mother and then to, to continue trying to better herself and to get her nurse's assistant certificate like that Obviously, it was one of my favorite scenes. Just seeing what that meant to her uh, was was very powerful. The one scene that I, I think uh, is just fascinating is late in the movie after Arthur has graduated or, or has finished playing at, at Marshall. He and his dad play that game of pickup on the playgrounds surrounded by their, their friends and family. And it it. it I mean, God, I, I'm sure we all have instances, whether with our fathers or friends or siblings, whatever, where it goes from like lighthearted to like, oh, no, they're they're actually yeah. this is starting to get a little awkward. Um, I, I thought that movie, just the father son dynamic it was 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 really uh, just an interesting scene. I, I really enjoyed that one. I think the stuff in the schools was really powerful for me. And and then going back to thinking about like getting approval to film in the schools and, and be in those classrooms in the summer school in, you know, I, the, the guidance counselor stuff, like, yeah, very much uh, that again, credit goes to the filmmakers for like probably jumping through a bunch of hoops to approve that stuff. The, the dot, I mean, we already talked about it, but like the surgery being in the surgery, with the cameras, I mean, and getting in there, right? I was like, oh, man. Do we need to see the, the needle in I, the – yeah, I'm like – The MRI machine, I 
fuck yeah, they hate those things. And just thinking about how much louder and more horrible those machines were in the early 90s than they were in, you know, 2010 when I was in one of them is, uh, was another powerful scene for me. Yeah. Uh, the other ones that I just had listed is uh, Mr. Ag like singing in the church, like after he comes back from, you know, being in jail and and kind of kicking the crack habit. Uh, that was just like, oh man, like I just I love you know that kind of Motown era or gospel kind of blend of singing and stuff, and so that was just awesome. Uh, and the, the Biggie talked about it the the graduating nursing certification. You know, the Mrs. Ag's getting her nursing degree, and there's maybe you know six people in that room and they're sh it's shot away from the back to sort of show you the emptiness of it. And then we immediately like contrast it with the, the packed gymnasium and stuff. Like that's a great example of how this is not a film about just basketball. It's about, you know, these people's lives. I thought that was, I had a note really kind of good uh, in, in my notes about uh, like, I actually early in the movie, the abrupt scene changes are a little like jarring when you just jump, like you're like, oh, where are we now? And then as the movie goes on, I, I think that really serves the the purpose, especially because you start to realize how long it's, how much time goes by, you know, and and the way they just jump, like jump cut to like the church scene. You're like, oh, okay, now we're here. And sometimes they have to add, yeah, like a little voiceover to, to place you, but it it works and, you know, yeah. it's, it's good. The stylistic choices I think that the directors made, like the more you get into the movie, the more they start to like sink in and feel like, oh, like these choices actually work, whereas they were disruptive to me in the beginning. Guys, is this the first reality show? I mean, the real world debuted in 1993, uh, but this was started being filmed in 1987. You know, I feel like this in a lot of ways like changed the way that sports documentaries were made and changed the way that like, just sitting back and observing people's lives became, you know, normal people, not sort of famous people. It'd be hard pressed to see certainly with sports prior to this film, any sports documentaries about anonymous people about the otherwise that you wouldn't know. And I, I kind of maybe a light went off in my head. It'll be like, Whoa, this kind of invented like a lot of a genre of this stuff. Yeah. That, that honestly gave me just with the reading that question for the first time that it kind of, made the light bulb go on a, a little bit for me as well. Yeah. I, I, the, the one thing I was, I was trying to think about in regards of like reality TV was pondering like had, had the producers wanted to try to make this a serial television series and how that would have changed things or, or affected things, you know, who, who knows, but you know, there, there could be a world where it was almost a little like hard knock, where it's like hey we're putting out an episode every month on even if it was on pbs right i i absolutely would listen it, it I, whether or not it, it started reality tv it certainly could have been a prime example of like the earliest form of it i i do believe yeah. that well this if this got greenlit today it would almost certainly be a like series on hulu or frankly it would be like a 10-part podcast it was part of like, you know, serial type kind of thing where we're following these people. I mean, the, the New York Times did a podcast about like, you know, kids going to different schools in New York City or the gentrification of one school where they told it over the course of a year. And, you know, that's that's the style of storytelling that works now. It's almost I love in a lot of ways that it's contained within a single three hour film, right? Because you it does even if you break it up, it forces you to sit there and really be in the 
that world for a long period of time as opposed to be like, oh, let's check in with the the chapter sort of segment of serial this week. Yeah, but the I think the time limit you're gonna get nowadays, which is you know, not good or bad, is is a year. A year is about as big of a canvas as you can cover. Just probably due to like yeah, financing and attention and you know the executive that greenlit it five years later is not there anymore you know like there's just a lot of factors involved with uh trying to do something over this time period yeah uh guys the the doc ends with the boys going off to college um is this the best place to end it uh you know we almost get like a whole nother story in the epilogue and then if you've followed up any of this stuff since like there's a whole nother like chapters and chapters of stories that are lives like you know uh uh, Curtis gets killed later in a, in a shooting in a sort of, you know, it wasn't a drug deal, but it was like something, you know, gone wrong with a, a person he had a dispute with or something. And, and Arthur's father gets killed, even though they move out to the suburbs, someone from his old life kind of comes and, you know, has a meeting with him and shoots him in his garage. And, you know, there's a lot of different, like, you know, good and bad tragic that still happens after this. William eventually ends up, you know, meeting Michael Jordan and going to a, like a training camp with Michael Jordan when he was considering a comeback with the wizards. And, you know, he really thinks that like Jordan's going to like bring him along with him and like have, you know, put him on the wizards, you know, sort of practice squad or the 12th man on the bench. And there's a lot of different ways that like, if you wanted to make this a 20 year film, you could have, uh, but I kind of wonder like for where it was, like, was this the best possible place to end it as they're sort of leaving to go off to college? I think so. I, I because I think it's a clean, it, like again another universally like relatable thing it's like the, it's a chapter like both it's a clean chapter break for both guys because then once they both go off to college like it's a lot harder to compare and contrast and probably keep the uh the same format of the you know of the movie going and and i'm i'm betting that these filmmakers are probably like all right we're done uh Let's get it. I think five years is good, man. I'm sure their families are probably like, are you still working on that? Like you need to like, <laughs> let's wrap this up, man. Which is crazy. Cause then it was another like two years in edit yeah. that they worked on it before they actually even had something to show to, I mean, you know, we get, I think we get, it might've been even longer than that because we get the, in the epilogue, we get that William uh, quit basketball and then went back for his senior year. So I think maybe it was like a full three years before, uh, we actually got something to show to people. So, yeah, uh, man, I, I, I really, I, I dig the time frame, and I, I think a lot of that for me is just reflecting on hoop dreams and meeting Arthur and William when they are kids, right? And and they have that innocent dream of playing professional basketball, and seeing how those dreams morph and shift and start to die and and you know the the hardness of becoming an adult and the the things you learn and and you know life kind of comes at both of them and i i just think it's 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 perfect i i think those high school years are are so formative especially in the athletic space that i i can't imagine maybe if they wanted to like go through college with them, but I almost think like that needed to be a, a separate film, kind of the, the hoop dreams as high schoolers. And then maybe like a, a revisited film project, but yeah, no notes on the way it, that they 
they kind of executed it on that that four year high school timeline. Guys, any parting thoughts? I, I uh, didn't imagine we could go two hours plus uh, on Hoop Dreams. I, I thought, oh my, I hope we have you know enough to talk about. But man, we I feel like we unpacked a lot of personal uh, you know things about our own athletic careers uh, and things that we maybe we wish had gone differently or things that we came to terms with uh, over time. But anything you're going to leave kind of having watched this, you know, to Neil, I'll, I'll start with you. No, I think I got it out. Cathartic stuff here today on, on the draft draw. Uh, <laughs> and no, I'm, I'm uh, maybe I'll set a calendar invite to rewatch this in 10 years and, and see if I, okay. you know, maybe I like pick up something new, but it's a, it's a great American uh, piece of art. So I'm glad it's in the Smithsonian. Uh, I, I co-signed that, that decision for them to, to, to put it in the Smithsonian. And now it's in the trap draw Critterton collection. That's so. right. <laughs> I, Big. yeah, I mean, God, I could talk for five more hours on, you know, the, the ins and outs of high school basketball and, and all of that stuff. But I, I just wanted to, I, I think shout out both William and Arthur for, they they both drop such nuggets of wisdom throughout this documentary that it's it's really impressive to watch two high school kids have perspective on certain things. Um, William specifically, I, I wrote down two of his quotes somewhat early in the film. Uh, William's quoted as saying, "Seems like everybody I know is my coach," and. For, for him to recognize that as a freshman, sophomore in high school, I thought it was just unbelievable, right? He's, he's Curtis is in his ear. He's got Coach Pingator. He's got, you know, his father, his mother is, I guess not William's father wasn't really in the picture, but, you know, so many people around him who are, I think want the best for him, but it just is not a single message at any point. And then for, for the film to end, I thought with one of the more powerful quotes of any movie with, you know, KV, you might know the quote specifically. I should have wrote this one down verbatim. But, but essentially, you know, William says, I, I've had people come up and tell me, don't forget about me when you make it big. And, and William turns that, flips it on its head and says, well, if I don't make it big, don't forget about me like holy shit is that a powerful quote and such a unbelievable understanding of two sides to the coin for somebody that's 17 18 years old i i just was blown away by that one in particular yeah yeah i, I wrote that down too big it's really when that he said that who knows when exactly he said that but you had to think the documentary filmmakers were like holy cow like that is a great sort of epitaph to the whole sort of piece uh and you know particularly when it didn't work out quite like you know he had hoped like that's such a moving sort of thing right because like uh, you know these guys in some ways have struggled with not living up to that initial promise even th later in their lives if you sort of follow and stuff and they're still you know there's they're still as of you know just last year started a podcast that's called like hoop dreams where they're still kind of living up so people haven't forgotten about them in some ways uh and that what william sort of said turned out to be true uh and so maybe that was their fate like if they had made it to the nba like how many like nobody nba players do you you know 
completely like, oh, I haven't thought of that guy in 10, 15, 20 years. Uh, and whereas like people, you know, every few years are like, oh, I got to watch Hoop Dreams again. Like that was such a moving sort of portrait thing. So in a lot of ways it turned out to be true. Like people haven't forgotten them. Well, thank you guys for uh, indulging me on this. This was awesome. You guys can be in my three man weave anytime. Hell yeah! I feel like we could get we could get some damage done on a fast break. Would love to get I, a three I, on two, two on one drill going on with the whole NLE that's, squad. That's right. Uh, no, I loved it. KV, awesome excuse to rewatch this film. Uh, it had been several years since I had, so I greatly enjoyed it. And of course, this time of year, my my nostalgia and love for basketball, I feel like, is is at its biggest so um hopefully you know maybe hey maybe watch a college basketball game here in march might need to might need to that sounds like a, a great idea big I'll, the the ghosts of the past will be returning and be like ah you know what i'm gonna get the little nerf hoop out and pretend to be you know todd day or uh you know lee mayberry the arkansas guys that i like so much lee mayberry, or, that's you know, a great pull Stacey augman god i love those guys so all right thank you boys Favorite rapper's favorite rapper. Hey, now I'm your favorite trapper's favorite trapper.